1: What do you like listening to? Um
2: Chart music. Chart music. Pop-crazed youngsters, and welcome to the latest edition of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the settee of a random episode of Top of the Pops, Armpit Deep. (laughs) I'm your host... I'll need them and as always I'm joined by two people who are not afraid to pick up the droppings left behind by the hit parade with their bare hands first up the welcome
3: return of Simon Price hey up Simon how are hey, we? hey I'm alright except I've got the common cold so I'm going to be chugging strepsils like some kind of deranged junkie here it's the hard stuff I tell you uh, and my second guest is our dear friend who hasn't been on for a while
2: Mr David Stubbs hello David
0: that's right also um, with um, what, what? What appears to be a very common cold, but um, I'll try and keep the um, snot at bay and the mucus a mile away.
2: So, anything to talk about, David? Since we last met, as your book coming along? Yeah,
0: Mars by nineteen eighty. Yeah, it's pretty much done. It's it's um, you know it's a pretty kind of invidious uh, task to try and kind of chronicle supposedly or to live up to a title, you know, the history of electronic music. But it's it's really it's not oh. absolutely comprehensive. I mean, I've had to preempt in the intro, you know, the character, why haven't you included such a I can't believe you'd write a book really not include blah, blah, blah. So um um I've tried to kind of preempt that in the intro and then it's just sort of angles and aspects. And it's not a techie thing. It's really more about how electronic music has sat in the world, what it's meant to people, you know, the hopes and fears it's realized and, and, and stuff like that rather than go too much into the uh you know, how to make your own mini-move and stuff like that.
2: <laughs> so so who who has not been mentioned? Well, I mean, I haven't really gone an
0: awful bundle on orchestral manoeuvres in the dark, because I kind of feel oh. that it's one of those groups that, if they hadn't existed, it wouldn't have been necessary to invent them, sort of thing. You know, they're just somebody who were very prominent in kind of carrying forward synth-pop at a certain time, and Annie is a very good talker, but... You know, I'm just uh, typical, <laughs> typical, typical
3: anti-scouse bias there from Stubbs.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Unfortunately, I do yeah, he's because I feel oh. the same way about Echo and the Man in post-punk. Really, that if they hadn't existed, then it wouldn't have quite. You know, even though I like them, that they, you know, that they don't feel kind of pivotal exactly. They're just, uh, you know. So well, there you are. Controversy already. You
3: with your, you with your, with your Beaujolais sipping, Arsenal supporting <laughs> ways, you know. You you just don't understand that you don't understand yes. the pride and the passion of playing for the shirt.
0: Yes, yes, the shirt. Yes, not fit to wear the gr- the grey buttoned up shirt.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> do you mention the tweets in the electronicas more than you do than um, orchestral manoeuvres in the dark? Oh, it's, it's
0: shocking. I meant, I mean, Alf Ramsey gets as many mentions in this book as orchestral manoeuvres in the dark, which is probably you know, <laughs> um, it is that kind of book. You know, it's referring outside of the kind of you know hermetic world of um, electronica and what have you. And seeing how it sits in the actual world and seeing how it hasn't, right back to, you know, the early 20th century, right up to, like, Screex.
2: How come Alf Ramsey's mentioned? Was he in Chicory
0: Tip or something? Um, No, it's it's in the chapter about Delia Derbyshire. I think I'm discussing the fact that she had to kind of adapt and speak a sort of rather strangulated kind of um, posh accent Uh. to kind of conceal her... Uh, you know, native origins, and that's what Alf Ramsey did as well. So I just sort of dragged him into it.
3: And if Andy McCluskey had done that, they'd have snuck past your 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 barriers there. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yes, I know. This is it. I'm going to be on the defensive from the get go when this thing comes out.
2: <laughs> so this episode, Pop Crazy youngsters, funnily enough, takes us all the way back to September the fourth, nineteen eighty. Now we've walked this way before in Chart Music Number Five, and we're barely three weeks away from that. Episode, and um, you know, I got to say that if Top of the Pops was a big tin of Quality Street, to my mind, 1980 would be the fudge ones or the the toffee deluxe ones, and I'm 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 really trying not to get me hand round them and and cane them all while there's the toffee pennies of the late eighties and mid nineties to to consume. <laughs> so you know, I w- I wasn't gonna do another 1981 for a while, but then something quite amazing happened to Simon. And uh, when I found out about it, I thought we've got to do this episode as soon as possible. Simon, tell tell the world why we're doing this episode in particular, please.
3: Yeah, well, it was my birthday quite recently, and a couple of friends of mine, uh, big up to Jimmy Lager and Annie O'Rourke, gave me an amazing present, which is a ring bound photocopied camera script from an actual episode of Top of the Pops from the one we're oh. going to be yeah, the one we're going to be oh. talking about, which is the fourth of September, nineteen eighty, and. It's and if that noise there is just me rubbing my thighs. Uh, yeah, uh, I I could I could picture that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's really it's something you can totally geek out over. A lot of mm. it's quite technical about kind of camera angles and stuff like that. But a lot of it's weirdly banal, and it just tells you, for example, what time they had lunch, thirteen Your... fifteen to fourteen fifteen. By the way, what time they had wow. dinner? 1800 to
2: 1900. And um, it's oh, a long. A two f- lunch oh, and yeah. dinner. Oh, yeah. Fucking this this, up is, these this pop is where stars, our, license, man.
3: our license fees were going on, you know, giving egg sandwiches to Cliff Richard Um <laughs> Sheena Easton. Um, it's a long old day as well. They start at 11 a.m. Yeah. and yeah. uh, that's the camera rehearsal and go on till potentially 10 o'clock at night. And I guess, you know, some of the pop stars would have been in makeup before that. So, mm. yeah, it's a long old haul. It's quite a commitment they're making by going on it. They're not just whisked yeah. in and whisked out. Yeah, and, and quite an instant
2: uh, long haul commitment as well because, you know, this is the time when the charts came out on Tuesday dinner time. Yeah. They've got to spring into action. The levers are set in motion. Mm-hmm. Lord BBC claps his hands together and all his little puppets dance. Absolutely. Oh.
0: One thing, though, if you've ever been to a recording of any TV show, um, Danny Baker talks about it, a bit, actually, in his new book. It takes a horrendously long time. It's a pretty miserable mm. experience, actually, for the people there. And yeah. you sometimes wonder why, you know, those little, little crowds, you know, at the top of the popular, they do actually look thoroughly miserable. It's because they've been herded round, probably, for the last several hours. I mean, by the time yeah. you get to this, at the end of this particular show, you know, these people look genuinely weary they look like they've been a victoria coach station for like seven hours <laughs> um, you're doing a sort of wildcat strike it's it's really um it really does you know it does bring home. But like you say it's a long day it's a very tedious progress you know process making a tv show you know, and considering mm-hmm. you know then the sheer falsity of like pretending that it's all happening in real time and it's kind of you know all and sort of tinsley and wacky you know it's sometimes a bit hard to maintain that presence and you know and the, you actually see hints of like the sheer Tedium of the um, process
2: so simon
3: when you went through this script what was the first thing that jumped out at you um i think really it was it was the dinner stuff it was just this idea of of this particularly (laughs) when we and we'll get to this in a minute particularly when we see who's co-presenting the program the idea of this kind of meeting of Mm. minds of of uh, that particular co-host rubbing shoulders with some of the pop stars over some probably Mm. quite bad canteen type food um Well, as long as it's only the shoulders that are being rubbed. Well, you know, obviously you can't guarantee that in those days. Um, I mean, not wishing (laughs) to make light of it, but jeez. But also, just the sheer detail, um, the the fact that uh, um, they go through the lyrics of every song and uh, it'll have how many minutes, how many seconds um, a particular line in the song comes in and whether the camera should zoom in on 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 acoustic guitar or the drummer or the lead singer... At that point, and oh. when you see that kind of detail, and then you think about how many times we've seen him get that wrong when when he zoom in on the on the wrong yeah. musician, it's which yeah, is yeah, many yeah, a time and often. Absolutely. Um, well, I guess they were working under quite a lot of pressure, quite a lot of sort of you know, it was it, it all had to be done in one day, so you can understand them yeah. screwing up occasionally. But absolutely fascinating stuff, um, and and kind of quite uh, almost hypnotically boring at times as well as being kind of yeah. geek out. You know, you just sort of flick through and just see the, this kind of parade of words and numbers words and numbers and, and baffling acronyms for types of camera And um, You were kind to pass on scans
2: of it to, to both me and David and my first impression by looking through it, it was like a, a copy of
3: Smash Hits produced by robots after a nuclear war <laughs> Yeah it's Yeah, it's, it's actually it's excising all the magic and humanity from pop yeah. and breaking it down to the bare facts of yeah. minutes and seconds and words and camera angles, which is quite cool in a way. Well, it? it's, it's what we, pretty much we do, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Radio
2: One news. So, what's in the news this week? Well... Princess Margaret is spotted with her former knockoff Roddy Llewellyn, at the Edinburgh Festival. Ronald Reagan calls the Vietnam War a noble cause and casts doubt on the validity of the theory of evolution whilst campaigning for a presidential election. The Pope has announced that he's coming to Britain in 1982. J.R. Stetson fetches £420 at auction in Sotheby's for ITV's Telethon. But the big news this week is that Ian Botham has decided not to sign a professional contract for Scunthorpe United. Oh, man. It could have been a very different 80s for English football if he'd have uh, if he'd have walked that way. On the cover of the NME this week, a certain ratio. On the cover of Smash It's Ian Jure. The number one LP in the UK is Flesh and Blood by Roxy Music. And in the US, the number one single is Upside Down by Diana Ross. And the number one LP in America is Emotional Rescue by the Rolling Stones. So, chaps, what were we doing in September 1980? It was, it was back to school time, wasn't it?
0: Well, I was just celebrating my 18th birthday. Um, oh. I was a very dark and serious boy then. Um, and um, I had to be persuaded by my dad to go out for a kind of ritual first pint. I wasn't interested in drinking at that point. I remember like going out and I remember May coming on he sort of practically forced two pints of lager <laughs> down. And I said, get some drink down, you lad. And it was just like, I really didn't fancy it at all and um, made up for it later. Um, but that was me, and that was, yes. you know I was a very different sort of creature, but completely you know completely obsessed with. It. I would have you know you showed me that issue of Enemy with a certain ratio on the cover. I probably remembered, but as chunks of various reviews and what have you, I probably like you know you just I'll just read it and then you know it's not that my memory was better. I think you just got a copy of the Enemy. You didn't just read it the once or only read, skim over half of it. Mm. You read it, then you read it again, and you read it yeah. again several weeks later and maybe yeah. a year later. Um, you know, just I would it was a time when my you know peak absorption of music press particularly enemy uh, 1980 i was definitely in a certain ratio boy
3: good lad simon I was at the other end of my teens. I was 12, um, about to turn 13, um, and just about to start my first term at Barry Boys Comprehensive, um, having just come back from a boarding school in England where my mum had got a job and I had to go yeah. with her, and where my Welsh accent marked me out as a common peasant. Um, oh, and, uh, man. and on arriving back in Wales, I found out I'd picked up an English accent oh, no. that, that marked me out as a posh twat. So oh. um, it taught me the lesson that you can try as hard as you like to assimilate, but you can never quite win. Mm. Um, And stop me if you've heard this one before, because we have dealt with this era quite close to it anyway. But culturally I was on the overlap between Pop kid' innocence and teenage tribalism yeah. i had I had wavy wavy ginger hair that I was about to have shorn off to make me look like one of madness, and um, my school trousers uh and i was I was mortified when, when I realized this, but uh, I was going going to this new school with trousers that had a bit of flair to them, oh. which uh, I soon insisted my mum had to take in to drain pipe with um yeah. And actually, I've, I've still got, I've still got a stamp album. And yeah, I, I collected stamps by all means. If you want to laugh at me? But, um, from that era. And on the inner front cover, these plain white pages, I've stenciled two things in feltic pen. One is abba, 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 voulez-vous. And the other <laughs> is madness, 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 one step beyond. So it wow. catches me at this kind of brink, this kind of turning point. Between these two areas in my life. But I think in my kind of self mythologized version of my own story, there's this kind of year zero, this kind of, this, this flashpoint where I hear gangsters by the specials and then nothing is ever the same again. Mm. But in fact, this is kind of creeping overlap, really, that I was still into some, some of, you know, some quite sort of innocent, um, sort of 1970s style pop. And, and I was also just sort of starting to get into the more edgy sounds of the new wave. Actually,
0: that's interesting. I don't re- re- just recall, actually. Yes, yeah, style-wise, I think I was a kind of bit of a holdout. I did, I came slightly late to post-punk. It was only right now, but when I got into it, I get into all the more extreme things like. Su- suicide second owl, you know, the full jaw division, whatever, public image and various other things, and even more to so the Capri Voltaire or whatever. But I was still wearing, so I, I, actually my style guru then was Marquis e. Smith. Mm. You know, I love the fact that you, you'd wear those sort of like the three-star jumpers and you the kind of, <laughs> you know, the, the, the sort of you know look like a real sort of manned urchin. And I, and I had a little sort of dodgy little rat boy tash as well. Oh no! So um, I would change later on, then I'd become more I really would try and sort of you know dress again like you know members of some of that trousers would come right right in you know it became sort of you know, the zeal of the converted when it came to tapering of trousers yeah. was something to behold. But at this point, yeah,
3: the flares were still kind of flapping around my ankles. Oh, actually,
0: mate. but it was meant as a, it was actually you know meant as a kind of you know a Marquis Smith type spirit. I, I was yeah. actually
3: a bit of a sort of witch finder general with flares. I became a bit of a bit of a zealot and, and a yeah. bit of a bully. Mm. That I, I remember um, yeah. a, a couple of friends and I going around the school playground finding anybody who still had flares on. <laughs> um, this, is, this is after yeah. after I'd had I'd safely had my own trousers taken in. Of uh, finding anybody with even the tiniest bit of flair that you could even maybe fit a thumb inside or something, yeah. just pointing, them, flares, flares, yeah. flares. I, I was horrible. Yeah. It was really, really awful. Yeah. But, yeah, it became a real witch hunt. Actually, It is strange, I actually, what I should mention
0: a certain ratio, because I remember for some reason in 1983 they played at the Leeds Warehouse, and Simon Toppin, at a certain ratio, he was for some reason he was wearing a sort of pair of, like, you know, wafty, flary trousers. And I just remember that all through the gig, the bloke next to me shouting, Fucking hell, toppings flares, <laughs> so yeah, they did, it's, it's I mean, yes, they, they obviously did the whole baggy, or they really kind of came back in. But yeah, the width of trousers, you know, was it was it was almost a moral issue, really. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it really represented a great deal. However, I mean, I would have had to explain to you, Price, if you would have come around doing your flare police thing with me. That you know, I was wearing them ironically. Oh, right, of course, I was about eighteen and you about eleven. So you who
3: know, was it who said hard. like trouser, like mine? Was it Joe Strummer or somebody like that? Yeah, what, like trousers yeah, yeah. like brain. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. Mm and he was right this whole thing backfired on me badly in the late 80s where I was a goth and I was wearing skin tri- trousers and I was on a railway station at Caddickston and there were some kids younger than me sort of 14 year old kids on, on the opposite platform who were clearly kind of Stone Roses fans and they had massive mm-hmm. trousers on and they all started pointing at me jeering going straight leg straight leg <laughs> You know, that was
2: the one thing that we, our generation thought we'd got rid of. We didn't do much else. We created so much misery in the world. Um, we've raised fuckwit kids who think beards and stupid tattoos are good. But the one thing we thought we'd done was eradicate flares and didn't even last 10 years, did it? <laughs> Terrible. Because I, at this time, I was just about to start the second year at a uh, comprehensive school and I was a, a fully fledged mod and. I'd started going out and hanging around with the mods in town on a Saturday, which basically involved meeting up in one shopping centre and then marching for about 20 minutes to the other shopping centre and back again and back again and back again. And Did you shout, we are the mods, we are
3: the mods, we are, we are, we are the mods? Um,
2: probably. <laughs> I can't remember an exact... Um, uh, moment where that happened
3: but quadrophenia you No, know, it
2: did yeah i mean I, how much of a mod you were depended entirely on how many times you'd seen quadrophenia yeah because it was an 18 um, or an x wasn't it i think it was an x yeah exactly yeah but you know you, you really had to hope that your dad had got a video
3: recorder or you knew a, a mate who did i think a lot more people claimed to have seen quadrophenia in my school than had actually seen it
2: oh yeah 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 it, it was it was that year's was warriors wasn't it I remember one Saturday, probably this month, where um, my mum had laid my jeans out for me. I had two pairs of jeans at the time. Uh, One of them was straight leg, one of them was flared. And uh, the the flared ones were dry and the straight leg ones were still on the radiator. And my mates came round, uh, sadly not on their scooters because they were 12 as well. And uh, we were going to go into town and it's like, they said you can't come out with us wearing those. <laughs> and I said why? Said <laughs> so the flares, mods don't wear flares. <laughs> and so I went back. I said, "Ma'am, I can't wear these. Mods don't wear flares, and they're going to look stupid with my with my other mods outfit, which was a brown corduroy jacket with massive lapels that had sewn a madness and a specials patch to, and of course, you know, encrusted one side of them with assorted badges." And uh, me and my mum ended up having a screaming round where I, I insisted I wasn't going to go out until I, I put on the straight leg jeans. And you know, in the end, I won, uh, but my arsehole eventually lost because it was my first uh, my first
3: occasion of piles. But you know. <laughs> Clean living under difficult circumstances. <laughs> Very difficult circumstances. I'll tell you how yeah. bad it got for me, because I was kind of into the mod aesthetic to some extent as well, even though I was more of a sort of scar, two-tone, rude boy type. Um, and you had to choose, some indeed. You, you? did have that, to choose. Was... Yeah, I mean, I, I had a Harrington jacket. Or else, you, or else you were called
2: a plastic mod, which was the biggest insult you could have put on anybody. Yeah, I, not, I had, you had a Harrington it.
3: jacket, and I think I started off um, sort of hedging my bets and having badges of the jam and stuff like that alongside the specials. Um, but then I had to mm. pick a side. I mean, I, I remember one of my mates getting punched yeah. in the face over Barry Islands on a bank holiday for not for not picking a side, basically. Um, but um, yeah, I I, I remember how, how bad it got for me it was on that Harrington. Uh, I wanted to express my love of Northern Soul music because that that was kind of like a mod thing. You're meant to appreciate a bit of Northern Soul. But the badge I had of Northern Soul had a dancer on it with massive flared trousers. (laughs) And I thought, I don't know, man. I mean, on the one hand, keep the faith. On the other hand, lose the flares. Yes.
2: One of my mates at the time, well, he, he became my best mate later on, but um, at the time he was just a lad on another street and he used to walk along with this massive parka and he painted the whole of the back of the parka, fishtail and all, with uh, Walt Jabsco. Oh, yeah. And he'd done such a genius job on it. And I'd i look at him out the window as he was walking up the street, kind of like torn between thinking, oh, God, that's really fucking mint and, oh, you plastic Martin." <laughs> <laughs> there was a badge that was being sold in town uh, on one of the markets and it was um it was kind of like a checkerboard and down one side it had the word madness and on the other side kind of like cro- like a crossword puzzle i know where it's, where it's going go on simon i know where it's going go on you finish it's- it modness no <laughs> yes it's so wrong yeah what well- yeah. So wrong, and uh, that was the old that uh, that was the ultimate plastic mod badge, along with you remember those plastic badges
3: of Walt Jabsco? Oh yeah, still got loads of them.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, and um, some they did a competition in Smash Hits to create um, sort of Walt Jabsco badges for different songs and everything, and some girl had done uh, one for "You Need uh, Wheels" by the Merton Parkers of Walt Jabsco and the Beat Girl on a scooter. I've got it. I've got one. Yeah, and, and that was somebody, some Barrow boy took that off the, scanned it in or something off the page of Smash Hits and created a badge yeah. out of it and it was everywhere, you know, it was in Nottingham so, and it, it was in Barry, so it must have been all over the place and yeah. that was the ultimate, the ultimate betrayal, you know, Walt Jabsco wouldn't be on a scooter because he's not a mod. <laughs> <laughs> and so- my,
0: my younger brother actually, Nick, he... um. He decided to become a mod, but it he was, he was well plastic as a mod. Um, I remember he just had two or three oh. little badges saying things, I don't know, time for action. And another one said, I think something like, I like green onions. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think he realised about Booker tea and everything like that. And um, I kind of mocked him about that at the time. Anyway, he basically didn't have anything. He had a sort of parker of sorts, but none of the other kind of, you know, mod paraphernalia, just these two pathetic badges. Um, and he went to Leeds City Centre on a Saturday, and he got the crap beaten out of him <laughs> coming home crying and bruised. And I was like guffawing at him, you know, like flares flares flapping as I was kind of guffing <laughs> away, him, you know, like brandishing my Faust album, you know, which I just managed to get my Faust reissue. So you know,
1: there is an alternative to this whole mod rocker thing. Yeah.
2: But yeah, I mean mods. It was like you know, I was I'd, I'd knock about the I'd, I'd knock about with them and everything. But yeah, I remember like after about a month, we were in the other shopping centre's bus station. And there's this one lad walking about on his own and he's got he's got air down to his arse and he's got a, he's got a, a I don't know a fucking rainbow patch on his on the back of his denim jacket and he's just like right let's get him and about fucking 12 on him just jumped on him and kicked the shit out of him and it's
3: like yeah. no I'm not I'm not happy about this I was thinking about this because like um, it was pretty much compulsory to be either a mod or a rude boy at my school and the mods mm-hmm. all wore um, kind of bowling shoes you know jam shoes as they were called yeah. Yeah. from usually ordered from Melandi of Carnaby Street mm. um, and I was thinking is, is mod the last time that um, British youth culture wore shoes instead of Trainers or sneakers, mm. you know. Um, I, I I think it is the last time that there was, you know, mass wearing of actual shoes. As, as opposed to things that primarily intended for running. And, um, I remember when a lot of the mods, about 83 kind of time, a lot mm. of the former mods in my school started becoming football casuals. Yeah. And they, they were the kind of the people who switched first. They were the first people to switch yeah. from shoes to wearing, wearing trainers. And, yeah. Um, th- I
2: mean, there was a phase, wasn't there, amongst the scooter boys in like 82, 83 of wearing boxing boots.
3: Yeah. I think yeah that was kind of like a Dexie's thing uh, when Dexys yeah. went through that that time when you know sort of sports gear and, and being very disciplined and running around running you know footage of Kevin Rowland sort of drilling his band forcing him to run around a track and, yes. and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, that that was the whole thing wasn't <laughs> it of being you know purifying the body so you purify the soul or that kind of business. Yeah, since then it was like oh yeah mods are fucking horrible actually. <laughs> and even
2: now you know I've got mates who are mods or have a, a mod aesthetic. And uh, they're, they're they're fucking lovely people, but if I do meet someone in a pub and they're a mod,
3: uh, I, I give them two minutes not to say something about UKIP, especially if if they're over forty. If they're, if they're over forty and they're like and they've got kind of grey weller hair, the sort of weller dad look. You oh know? yes, yeah. Yeah. Well, if fact, I, I I I actually love Weller dads because they crack me up. You know, yeah, I, I, I they don't give, give a fuck. If I yeah, if I I actually love it. They've got that kind of Liam Gallagher poor Weller hair, but grey, and you, you see him around town. It's it's, the, the, it's actually the it's so, it sort of warms the heart a little bit. They they do cheer me up. Mod yeah. dads, you know. Yeah. well, that's,
0: that's really weird that mods should be conflated with English-British pride, actually, yeah. because the whole roots of it are to do with Europe. I mean, you know, to, yeah. to the look, I mean, that was important. It's a European import. It's you know, it's very Europhile, really. Yes, and it is. And, of course, is. music-wise, it's like getting, you know, it's great black American music. Yeah. So it is odd that it became, that kind of conflation happened. Yeah, I yeah. think people just
3: look back at the Who in the 60s with their kind of ironic appropriation of yeah. the Union Jack and just yeah. took yeah. it literally.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And Roger Daltrey, and Glenn Roger Daltrey himself, of course.
2: Yes. Oh, mods. When will you learn? Oh, God. Daltrey.
3: <laughs> Watch your backs, lads, etc. Yeah.
2: So, what else was on telly today? Well, BBC One has run Play School, the all-new Popeye show, Young Explorers. Sorry, I'm laughing about flares. <laughs> <laughs> The way you can—they were the most comical thing ever. After about nineteen eighty, I mean, like like you did, Simon. I, me and my mates used to go into town, and we would we would go. We we we'd call flares for some bizarre reason. We called flares spats. Okay, and we would just spend
3: just just looking at the top of the bus, and all of a sudden your mate would go ah spats. <laughs> there was Dan dares Dan dares makes Dan dares makes sense as rhyming yeah. slang. But another one I never yes. I never understood this one Saxons. Look at those Saxons. Saxons. I don't know why. I Don't know why. But just a was source one, yeah.
2: of comment. I remember one time, um, me and my mates, <laughs> we broke into my dad's wardrobe, and uh, he kept all his flares from from the seventies, and there was proper. They, they they had proper like jumbo checks and just really nasty wow. colours. And we we'd go, we would dared each other in about what was it, nineteen eighty two, to to put them on and go down to the chip shop. And, uh, you know, we, I think we did invent the 70s revival that night. He had a safari suit as well. And it's like, what the fuck have you got this for we had this at
3: school we had at the end of term one year we had we had a um a bad tie day where you had to come in and wear an awful tie and most of the other kids dads didn't really have any exceptional ties but my dad having been Mm. a hippie in the in the 60s and just a bit of a sort of flamboyant character had a whole load of these awful kipper ties and i I borrowed a bunch and he was really he was really offended that i I, I (laughs) i borrowed about a dozen of his ties to share around the class that day but the other thing I remember, we, we had this French assistant, assistant, or whatever, that came in, called Pierre, uh, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and, because France was maybe, um, a, a little bit different fashion wise from the UK, um, he was wearing this, this, this bright blue suit with massive flared trousers. Oh. And we'd see him, he, uh, flapping across the car park. We'd see him out the window <laughs> and we'd all be shouting out the window, Pierre Le Flair. <laughs> <laughs> Poor bastard. He comes to this country to do his best to educate a bunch of us. And then that's what he gets in return.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it, it obsessed him about the trousers. I remember
2: by 1984 Dependent. when we were in the last year of school, we were um we were shown all these careers films in a, a doomed attempt to try and get us work. And they were all from the 70s, and there was one where this bloke was this young lad. Was I don't know if you've seen this one. I mean, you, you you just couldn't show it nowadays. It was where he was getting careers advice from an African mask on the wall, and this mask did have the full-on Jim Davidson chalky accent. No, but yeah, so, and the uh, and the lad was wearing the absolute biggest pair of fucking swinging lingers ever. And so wow. you know, here we are getting careers advice, and half of the half of the assembly are pissing themselves laughing at the flares, and the and the other half just. Staring fucking daggers at the screen, and, and and there was a lot of teeth sucking yeah, as well. Surprise, <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, it's one of those things, you know. You you, know, you couldn't do that now. You couldn't do that then. It's just that they did. And, uh, <laughs> no, yeah. yes, but, um, yes. But no, it, it's it, actually going back to flares. The last time I probably wore flares. Ironically,
2: <laughs> we're not going to get off the subject of flares. Though. I could talk about flares all day. I'm loving this. Just just last time is
0: is was a, is a 70s revival party, which I'm going to in early 1981. And I think what's extraordinary about that is that already there was a sense of the 70s as distinctive and kind of culturally distant way and complete, you know, there was this complete radical turnaround, you know, from the spirit of the 70s. And I mean, you don't, I don't think subsequent decades, I mean, it'd be hard, I think, to get a handle on what the 80s were. It probably took until about, you know, about the mid-90s, really, to kind of be able to kind of get that
2: cultural distance and sit back and say oh yeah that was the 80s so what was on telly today well bbc one has run play school the all-new popeye show young explorers john craven's news paddington nationwide and raymond baxter has just finished presenting highlights from the farnborough air show BBC Two has given over the whole afternoon to the TUC conference in Brighton, followed by the Open University and a look at Belfast's oldest fair in the documentary series Network. ITV has covered racing from York and the European Open Golf Championship from Tadworth, followed by Tarzan, the Dougie Brown sitcom Take My Wife about a northern comedian. Then Popeye, University Challenge, Crossroads and the police sitcom Spooners Patch. A lot of Popeye on the telly today all new as well apparently who knew they were still making them and of course as we all know being gentlemen of a certain era when the phrase all new appears in a cartoon series you know it's going to be cat shit <laughs> oh yeah
0: definitely all new Tom and Jerry Yeah, when they have them talking and stuff I
2: know alright then pop craze youngsters it's time to go in hard on the autumn of 1980 you know the drill by now we may coat down your favourite band or artist but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have It's Thursday, September the 4th, 1980, and Top of the Pops is still going through their relaunch, brought on by the musicians' union strike in the summer. Your main host for this evening is wah, wah, Oops. Dave Lee Travis. He's currently the hairy overlord of Radio 1, higher top of the schedule as the breakfast show presenter, where he'll stay for another three months before being usurped by Mike Reed. But we also have a very special guest. Born in Doncaster in 1951, Kevin Keegan played three seasons for Scunthorpe United before being signed by Liverpool FC for £35,000 in 1971, scoring on his debut against Nottingham Forest. He went on to help Liverpool to win the league three times, the FA Cup, the UEFA Cup twice and the European Cup in 1977, his last game for Liverpool before being transferred to Hamburg SV for half a million pounds. In 1978, he was named European Footballer of the Year. Then he helped Hamburg win the Bundesliga a year later and played his final game for the club when they lost the 1980 European Cup final. To a certain club that I don't need to mention. (laughs) He returned to England in the summer of this year and he joined Southampton for £420,000. And this very week, Southampton are currently top of Division 1 with Ipswich Town and Aston Villa. As well as being the most famous footballer in the country at the moment, he's also had a go at this pop music lock, reaching number 31 in 1979 with Head Over Heels in Love. And his latest single, England, was released last month but isn't seeing any chart action at all, and rightly so, because it's a bit rubbish. He was the David Beckham of his day, and then some, wasn't he?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, oh, by the yeah. way, um, who would have thought that we'd already have mentioned Scunthorpe United twice in this episode? Yes. Um, yes. Scunthorpe, yes. Um, the only uh, British town name that used to get censored on internet forums for containing the C word. Um, yeah, so Peggy yes. um, Kegel, as Brian Moore famously called him. Um, yes, uh, of course, uh, he, yes. He, was, he was kind of, um, he was a hero of mine. I was... Uh, I was nine years old when I became became a Liverpool supporter in being a shameless kind of glory hunter in the the spring of 1977. And and that summer, as you say, Keegan... Um, left to play for Hamburger SV, and it was the first time mm. as a football supporter I had that heartbreaking feeling you get, of kind of of your girlfriend cheating on you, metaphorically speaking. You oh. know, so I only really had about two months of him being my hero before he was off, and that made it all oh, well painful. Mate. But it all worked out okay because we spent, and you talk about remembering stats. Uh, we spent four hundred forty thousand pounds of the revenue on Kenny Dalglish, who became Liverpool's greatest ever player. Can you imagine Kenny Dalglish co-presenting this? Fucking hell. no, that's exactly it. You. Can't <laughs> I cannot imagine Kenny Dalgleish no. co-presenting anything because um, no. he's very hes very much not a people person. He's very kind of gruff and taciturn and reticent. Whereas, and you can't understand the fucking word he's saying. You can't understand the word he's saying, which, you know, probably we've lost all our Scottish listeners now by saying that, but I think it's a yeah. fair comment. But... Um, Keegan uh, thinks he's a people person. He thinks he's got the gift of the gab. And as we're going to yeah. see in this episode, bloody hell. But, um, <laughs> but but the thing with Keegan is that as, as much as his playing career, you, I'm, I mainly remember him for his kind of off-fields, off-pitch stuff. Like... Scraping his leg falling off a bike on BBC Superstars. Do you remember that? Yes. And, um, Fucking hell, yes. And the weird kind of homoerotic shower room banter with Henry Cooper. Henry Cooper, Cooper absolutely. In those, in, those, in those brute adverts, splash it on all over and all that. Yeah. I think the thing about
0: Keegan is that, um, I mean, obviously, even people like Trevor Francis seem pretty kind of rock and roll and glam because they would just because they had long hair, basically. The hair, once you extend it your ears, you would kind of, been, you know, but clearly from a lot of the work. I mean, the difference between Kevin Keegan saying like Stan Bowles or Rodney Marshall, George Bess is. They had this air of sort of flamboyantness and effortness and laziness or whatever, where he's, he was completely the opposite of that. You don't get the impression he was especially a flamboyant figure. He had a sort of limited time like he just made absolutely the most of his talent. He was just a very hard worker and a mm. trier and a doer and stuff like that. He had a great engine. Yeah, a great engine, of course.
3: So why's he on here then? God knows. Well, he's hurt his leg, hasn't he? We know that much. <laughs> his foot, yeah. His foot, yeah. But apart from that, yeah. I, know. I think he thinks that if you just have
0: the kind of, the, you know, there's that sort of poodle hair perb, then that's pretty much going to do all the work for you. And then you yeah, can see yeah. certain moments when he realises that, um, you know, you do actually have to kind of formulate words, sentences, ideas, or whatever. And uh, um, again, you know, he's yeah. game for it, But and I
3: think he does metaphorically fall off his bike a few times in this one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he's, he's, he he's got a record out, so maybe that's, you know, but it's stiffed, as we know, so maybe that's why he's yeah. on there, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, presumably... The, the season would have started with, with Southampton, so. I don't know if he played a game and then hurt his foot or if he was out injured. He the... scored. He oh. scored uh, the previous
2: Saturday. Okay, right. Must have been a racist rocket type of shot or something because, yeah, he's he's, he's hurt his foot. It wasn't exactly Beckham's metatarsal, <laughs> but, you know, would have been would have been a worry. So, Simon, we've spoken before about um, some of the really nasty, horrible, rubbish links that uh, the presenters trot out. Yeah. So, would you like to tell the audience... The Pop Craze youngsters, if you will, um how scripted the introductions to Top of the Pops really are.
3: Well, I mean they're not it's not literally I'm just gonna have a look. But I, I didn't see I didn't see any any um links written down. No, so they've obviously just cooked it up between them with thirty seconds to spare or something. Yeah. And not that you can tell of anything. No, no, God no. God no. God, no.
2: Sadly we couldn't locate the opening minute or so of this episode because for some reason it wasn't repeated on BBC4 and we're using a a UK gold uh, repeat from the 90s which whoever recorded it didn't kind of like press the record button in time so that is lost to the winds of history so chaps um would you care to speculate what DLT and Kevin Keegan said at the beginning?
0: I don't know. They, they seem to have got this whole thing going about how somehow they're kind of, you know, two peas from a similar pod, basically, because of their kind of appearance. Since we are running. Running sort of deathly non-joke to that effect, so they
2: because there's there's much in there's much in black perms going on. I can imagine it being
0: something like, "Hello from me," and it's "Hello from him," or something like that. It's uh, mm. yeah. and I,
3: also I'm I'm willing to bet because you know DLT would have had this feeling that he's being usurped by this yeah. yes. bigger star appearing yes. on the show, much bigger star. He he would have sort of done a joking but not joking mm. bit about yeah. that, saying, "Hi, I'm Dave Lee Travis, and I don't know who this guy is," or but something is, like yeah. that. You know, yeah. yeah,
0: there was some prize partridge in this. In this
3: one, oh god,
2: yes, there is plenty of it, isn't there, from both parties? But I, I like to imagine that you just get a close-up of a perm, and you hear (laughs) David Lee Travis's voice, and you think, "Oh my god, I hope that's his hair and not his pubes." (laughs) And then the the camera pulls back, and it's actually Kevin Keegan, because as as our our dear friend Taylor pointed out, you know, David Lee Travis is in the full wreath stage of his uh, of his beard. Uh, at the moment. <laughs> and and in and in this episode he actually looks like a living Nasher badge. Yes. <laughs> yes. you know the badge yes, in the Dennis Dominic's yes, yes. yeah, complete yeah. with, yeah. Yeah. If we if we ever do chart music merchandise <laughs> and start a fan club up, that will be the badge. With that tool, a Davely yeah. Travis Nasher badge. Oh, Christ.
4: Hazel O'Connor and eight day. Billy Joel, still rock and rolling with the aid of the lovely legs and co. Cliff, and his latest single sound called Dreaming. Sheena Easton with one of two records in the chart. This one, Modern Girl. The Beat, talking about their best friend. And one of my personal favourites around at the moment, Randy Crawford, and One Day I'll Fly Away. So, let's kick things off with an excellent piece of music from Secret Affair. Welcome to Top of the Pops and the Sound of
1: Confusion.
2: So, after a spoiler alert as to what's on on this episode, Travis introduces an excellent piece of music. It's Sound of Confusion by Secret Affair. Formed in London in 1978, Secret Affair were headed by singer Ian Page and guitarist David Kearns, who were in the recently disbanded power pop band New Hots, and recruited the remaining members of the band with an advert in Melody Maker which asked for ambitious young musicians who must have a grudge against the music business. <laughs> <laughs> After their first gig, supporting the jam at Reading University, they were approached by a load of mod revivalists who were looking for a new band to latch onto and were invited to become the house band at a mod pub in Barking called The Barge Round. Their first single, Time for Action, got to number 13 in September of 1979, but the follow-up, Let Your Heart Dance, only got to number 32 in November of this year. This is the follow-up to My World, which got to number 16 in April of 1918, and it's gone up from number 52 to number 45 so this band, they're they're pretty much the figurehead band of the Mod Revival aren't they?
3: Yeah, Mm. them and the Lambrettas yeah yeah, yeah, those
2: two were the only ones that were kind of like chart regulars in late 1979 and, and 1980
3: yeah I think the Merton Parkers might have scraped the top 40 I don't know but yeah they
2: did yeah well you need wheels yes they did yeah I, I think they were on and top the of the truth boxes. and the
3: cords I don't know if they the, ever did
2: yeah, yeah the cords mm. the cords scraped in the truth were, were a little bit later yeah. who
3: else was there
2: that's pretty much is it? There was Squire Purple Hearts,
3: but they didn't have a hit. No, no. neither
2: did Squire. So that there, there yeah. were lo- I mean, there yeah. were loads of mod revival bands, but you know, they were pretty much a bit cack, weren't they?
0: Yeah. I mean it's uh, when they say sound of confusion, I, I used to remember hearing it at the time thinking they were saying it's the sound of the future. In a yes. sad kind of way, they were they were actually right. Yes, <laughs> but, um, yes. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting why there should have been a kind of a mod revival at this point. And I don't think it's just because of the quadrufina. I think that it was, clearly this came out of the sort of punk post-punk thing. And there was, you know, and it does, it does seem to be that there's almost like this kind of eternal sort of binary conflict between mods and rockers in you know, popular mm. culture, you know, for all kinds of various reasons. And I suppose what punk did, again, it goes back to that kind of tapering thing, you know, which is very much sort of, very much part of the whole, you know, tapered, sharp, whatever, you know, and it's yeah. um...
2: apparently David. Apparently, it, it kind of started from a, a, a jam gig in, I believe, it was in Paris, where a load of where a load of jam fans had gone over on the ferry, and they ended up talking about how they liked, you know like the the mod aesthetic and you know they they all decided to be mods and and bring it back again but i mean there was always that kind of small faces influence in you know in a, in a lot of the Stray, punk bands yeah, yeah yeah so so yeah it wasn't it wasn't too surprising
0: yeah no, no yeah it, it, it you know it definitely makes sense um but um, but also it just shows that part of punk was a kind of postmodern moment, and um, you know things do you know it's the beginning of that kind of very sort of retrograde sort of um, strain you know in in, in the culture. Mm. Tell me what gets me about this song though bloody hell huh. that sax solo that's cutting through I mean the saxophonist union at the time must have had some serious clout yeah. because what
3: the hell is it doing well that? he uses a, he uses two saxes doesn't he he plays two saxes at once which is yeah. kind of in a way making up for the candelabra treachery of the Boomtown Rats
2: yes yes but let's let's not forget that, um, that yes. um, Ian Dura and the Blockheads did it as well with Hit Me With the Rhythm Stick uh, so it's not it's not a new
0: thing ah but there's saxophone solos and saxophone solos and you know the one on Hit Me With the Rhythm Stick that's a pretty decent one you know that's um, you know, there's um, you know, there's there's John Coltrane and there's Kenny D. And this is much more
3: of that kind. Of, you know, this is this is sheer ch- ch- cheese coming out of that. Ball. Well, that's the thing that it's not very mod, really, because I I take David's point about uh, music being this constant struggle between stuff that um, billows and expands and stuff that shrinks down and tapers. And mod was meant to be all about that kind of sharpness, that uptightness. But the thing, with, thing with Secret Fair on this record, is they don't look or sound very sharp and and th- it's an interesting thing about mod fashion is there 's a really thin line between mod and bank clerk and that 's actually yes. something I like about mod that that um it 's kind of a, a sort of hiding in plain sight tribe because you have to be mm. in the know to distinguish between someone who 's you know an ace face or and, and someone who 's working but working behind the counter at santander yes you know and it's it 's based on tiny details it 's based on the exact. Width of lapel or the number of buttons and that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I, I like that. And, and, um, ironically, Ian Page, the singer, actually did become a banker. I remember this, um, a few years later, one of the music papers printed this corporate who's who from somebody's, you know, corporate literature with his photo and a little biog saying, you know, he used to be a rock star, but now he's working for whatever bank it is. And uh, wow. they printed it to, to take the piss out of him.
2: But being a mob was more about kind of like wearing a suit or a boating in Blazer, if you were, you know, if you were looking, as opposed to the music, because, you know, what, what, what is there that's new is is very thin on the ground. I, I remember a lot of my mod mates uh, would go off and buy Quadrophenia, and, you know, I ended up listening to it, and it's like, oh, fucking hell, yeah. this is fucking yeah.
0: hippie music. It's a terrible album. It's antithetical one. It's almost like Pete Townsend saying, of course, those are my kind of crazy youthful days. I got past that now, and I now make these kind of... Concept albums with shiny um, synths um, sh- rippling across yeah, the top. Yeah. yeah, It's absolutely nothing to do with yeah, sound wise or whatever. And it's actually very almost like con- it's, a, it's a very condescending record actually towards the whole thing. But just well, there, back- there
3: were two albums, weren't there? Sorry, David. There were two albums. There was the Who's soundtrack, which mm. was all this kind of prog stuff that you yeah. had this sort of this grand operatic yeah. concept. And then there was the soundtrack album, which is actually really fucking cool, and it's yeah, got yeah. you know you know Shangri La's and Booker T. and the MGS and all that kind of stuff on there. You know, fantastic. well, yes.
2: Yes, the the fourth side yeah, yeah. has all that old stuff on it. And, um, you know, I remember going back and listening to it, and y- you know that everyone involved in the making of that album is wearing absolutely fucking yeah. massive flares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, right up until the kind of like late 90s, if I was ever at a secondhand record shop or a record fair, I would go and find the Quadrophenia soundtrack album. The one we um, Phil Daniels on the cover pull the records out of the sleeves and you were almost guarantee that the first three sides of that album that the Who did were absolutely pristine <laughs> and the fourth side with the old song were absolutely fucking played to death yeah. and I thought yeah I I felt your pain brother yeah
0: yeah but it's interesting what Simon was saying earlier on about you know the, you know the thing about the suits and about the wearing the shirt and ties and the sort of in plain sight thing and the bank clerk kind of thing because. There's a commonality there with all post-punk things like wire and even like people like this. The people that would on even public image, you know, they would always wear shirts and ties. And it was part of them saying, there was two things. They were saying like, we're serious, we mean business. It was also an anti, it wasn't just anti-rock, it's anti-rock. And it was the whole sort of, you know, slightly lazy, leathery, sort of hoary uh, aspects of rock. Um, that it was almost like standing in sort of sharp, there's a sort of sharp reproach to, as a sharp contrast to, and you know, and the fact of celebrating, you know, great black music of a certain era that's kind of brilliant and immaculate, and a kind of again a sort of riposte to all the kind of horrible, hoary conceits of um, increasingly bloated rock scene. But which makes that saxophone solo all the more ridiculous, because that saxophone solo is like the oral equivalent of Dave Lee Travis's hair. <laughs>
3: I think they, they, they actually got it right on the first single, Time for Action. Yes. And the lyrics, the lyrics of that song are all about, you know, dressing up sharp for a night out and being laughed at on the train by horrible punks or whatever. Yes. The punk elite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We hate (laughs) the punk elite. Yeah. Um, the thing with Time for Action is it's, it's a live or at least a pseudo live recording. And at the end, it's got this kind of crowd noise. Um, go, we are the mods, we are the mods. But if you play it on vinyl, if you play it and push the volume right up at the end, you can hear the, you know, the crowd chanting we are the mods, we are the mods and just somebody in the background shouting wankers and it's the most brilliant thing I've ever heard on a record
2: because I remember I hadn't heard that song for ages but I went a few years ago I went to see From the Jam at Rock City and um, beforehand they played that and there's a load of people there and it was all ages because you know the the mod thing just just, just refuses to go away and just everyone went fucking berserk. And I, I'm just looking at my mate with this absolutely massive grin on my face, thinking, oh, fucking hell, this is all right, actually. <laughs> and also, but also, I mean, the, the follow up, Let Your Heart Dance, I think it's just as good. But you listen uh-huh. to that, and it's like, fucking hell, this is, a, this is a glam record. The opening drum beat, it's like a fucking
3: sweet demo. I haven't played that for years. I've got to give it yeah, a chance. You, yeah,
2: you go and have a listen to it. But but it was like, okay, these bands, okay, right, we're mods, so we've got to wear this and uh, we've got to stand like that and we need these instruments. But they hadn't worked
3: out how they should sound. Mm. And there was well, this, the know, the- of confusion. This song is really kind mm. of watery and wimpy, isn't it? It's not a mod record at all. Hmm. And even the, even the kind of... This is kind of... Um, whoever's working in the gantry at Top of the Pops is playing with their new toys big time, aren't yes. they? Oh, fuck Because they've got that yes. Kind of- They've got this kind of stuttery camera thing going on and mm. there's a bit of phasing on the sound. I'm not sure if that's on the record or if that's T.O.T.P. dicking around with it. But it, it is It is all a bit um, Ichiku Park, isn't it, at that moment?
2: So, the following week, Sound of Confusion dropped 18 places to number 63. The follow-up single, Do You Know?, would only get to number 57 in October of 1981 and the band split up in 1982. After releasing two flop solo singles and, according to Smash Hits, working as a croupier, Ian Page spent the mid-80s writing a collection of fighting fantasy books based on the Dungeons & Dragons character he played in the late 70s. Oh my God. Yeah, he kept that fucking quiet, didn't he? Including the titles Grey Star the Wizard, (laughs) The Forbidden City and Beyond the Nightmare Gate. <laughs> Roll a d twelve against your poker of <laughs> invisibility. See,
3: there's there's nothing mod about wizards, is there? Wizards mm. are pro- wizards are probably the, the no. least mod of all kind of fantasy characters. Well, you know, uh, the whole outfit is a giant
0: flare, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Let <laughs>
1: ask you a question.
4: Nobody's listening. Do you like redheads? Well, I like Alan Ball, but my favourite <laughs> at the moment. My, my favourite at the moment is that young lady over there. Right? Not Kelly Marie. Oh, you Ooh. got a good choice there, feet don't touch the
1: ground. Because you're near to me, my head goes round and
2: round. Travis in a grey-blue shirt and trouser combination with the shirt open to the diaphragm, and Kev, in a stripy polo shirt, discuss their opinion on redheads. After displaying a preference for teammate Alan Ball, they have a bit of a gurney letch at the next artist, Kelly Marie. Born Jacqueline McKinnon in Paisley in 1957, Kelly Marie made a television debut in 1973 when she won Opportunity Knocks four weeks on the bands with her interpretation of I don't know how to love him. After signing a deal with Pie Records, she became very popular in France, Ireland, Australia and South Africa, but couldn't get a hit in the UK. However, in early 1979, she chanced upon a song lying about in the record Company Officers, written by Ray Dorset of Mungo Jerry, which he intended to pitch at Elvis Presley, and liked the look of it. It became a top 10 hit in South Africa later that year, but didn't get much play in the UK outside of Scotland. However, after it was picked up and re-released by Calibre Records, it finally broke into the charts, and is up this week from number 5, to number three before we go into the song Travis you know we don't see him much from the waist down which is you know which is not not a bad thing but you know with that shirt open as much as it is mm. oh man it fucking is, yeah. is isn't it it's horrific yeah, it's disgusting it, it's terrible
3: but in his it's like seeing one of your school teachers letting their hair down at, at the staff party yes. and, and unbuttoning their shirt. Yeah. This kind of horrible milky white expanse. as well as the,
0: as well as the war of the flares. There was well the war of the shirt buttons as whatever. Well. But at that point, yes. you know, you're supposed to have your top button done up. You know, never mind. You know, it, it's it's um, mm. says so absolutely out of kilter with um, correct thinking at the time.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but in his defence, you know, that collar is not. It's not condoresque, is it? It's it's you know, it's it's been reined in. No, but he has got some kind of gold chain medallion thing going on, hasn't he? He has again. But again, it's not massively chunky. So, you know, I think this is him transitioning through the uh, Mm. Aventis Mm.
3: into... into Oh, don't you start. Don't you start with Taylor Parker's Aventis. (laughs) Aventis. Stop trying to make Aventis happen. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I think think it's kind of a niche thing. I don't think it's uh, (laughs)
2: going (laughs) to... So anyway, um, the song written by... um, Old mutton chops himself, um, with Elvis in mind, and you know, he, apparently he wrote it, um, assuming that Elvis hadn't have killed himself on the bog, uh, he would have, he would have like everyone else gone into a disco phase. I mean, can, can you see that? Can you see disco Elvis?
3: Well, he kind of did, didn't he? way down, way down, yes. had a bit of a, it's kind of dis- disco meets kind of Osmond's Crazy Horses, yes. kind of, kind yeah, of. Yeah, he stuff. was going in that direction, um, wasn't he? Yeah, and you can you can hear this song in an Elvis voice, like "My head is in a spin, my feet don't touch the ground." Very good, yeah. That kind of yeah, thing, yeah, apparently yeah.
2: On, on YouTube okay. and soon to be on the video playlist, uh, an Elvis impersonator has done it, and it's like, yeah, oh, right. yeah, you can actually hear it. So, so yeah,
3: yeah. But this this kind of weird banter between. Um, uh, Kevin Keegan and DLT. We can't not no, talk cool, about no. this, right? The, the, the whole the whole redheads thing. Like, do you like red? Is it do you like redheads? And um, they, he said something about Alan Ball. It's kind of awful. Yeah. Alan Ball gag. Before, <laughs> I, I, I never thought I'd 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 say the phrase ball gag in relation to Kevin Keegan. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this weird kind of thing of like purving at Kelly Marie before they yeah, you know, lasciviously before they, they cut across to to the performance yeah. they're incriminating um,
0: themselves and not even doing it convincingly that's the sad thing
3: yeah yeah and Keegan keeps doing this kind of weird gurning doesn't he
0: yes do he right? does Yes, well, it's a Les Dawson it's a Les Dawson uh, yes. reference basically yeah. yeah 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 yeah. do
3: you think mm-hmm. it is or is it just I wonder if it's just kind of nervousness he doesn't know what to do with his face
0: no 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 oh, that's it, 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 it's a Les Dawson yeah, yeah. it's a Les Dawson yeah, what, I suppose you're right yeah. actually yeah um,
3: I mean, as as far as the song goes, I think it's yeah. fair to say that I hated this at the time. Yes. Um, partly, I think it was due to a bit of latent homophobia on my part. I, I think, oh, really? I mean, yeah, because I, I think there's something about the dancers who obviously now that it's the campus thing you've seen in your life. Yes. These these two guys, they're kind of... Um, <coughs> I think at least one of them actually is black, but nevertheless, they look like minstrels. Um, they're, they're, they're both they're, black. And, and they're, they're, yeah. yeah, but they're, they're kind of dressed in kind of minstrel yeah, both- style. Yes, with, with town these strutters. Kind of, yeah, 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 and they've got um, kind of hen night, hen uh, gold mm. sequined bowler hats on. Yes, uh, and, but there's there's something about their kind of, um, and obviously it's just the campus thing, in the world as we as yeah. know, look, looking from now. But at the time, I think there was just something about their over expressive exuberance that made mm. me uncomfortable, e- even though I wouldn't have known there was anything in avert commas gay about it at the time. Yeah, um, I, I just think a lot of teenage boys go through. A homophobic phase before before they grow out of it yes and i think there's just something about this that would yeah. have made me kind of clench my buttocks a bit and just feel a bit wrong about it do you know what i mean
2: yeah and um, of course the the idea of a a, a pretty yeah. white girl dancing with two statuesque black men you know it, yeah. it, it would have been quite contentious but this is you know this is essentially not gossip isn't it yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah but
3: it, it is it's a terrible record i mean the thing is uh the the song and you know we've already done the whole elvis bit that you you, you know ray dorset has written what could in someone else's hands maybe have been a really decent song but mm. in in kelly marie's hands it's so kind of end of the pier it's kind of yes. seaside special it's it's, it's very time. seaside special it's, isn't yeah, it yeah it's it's tea time variety show disco mm. Um, mm. Yeah. So, um, but it's, I would also, sorry, go on, David. I was going to
0: say it, it's, yeah, it's that ridiculously over exuberant register. I imagine it was played at gay clubs at the time, though. I imagine it was, um, yeah, you know, it's, a, it's a slightly cheesy sort of thing. I mean, the only thing, I mean, there are various things that are wrong with Kelly Marie, mainly that she's not Tina Marie, you know, it's always that kind of you know, confusion. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but when election, that's 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 another weird thing because I don't think. I mean, she—someone she, like Kelly Marie wouldn't be allowed to make those kinds of records and be on any kind of to on top of the pots these days because she wouldn't pass the sort of ridiculous doll test that anybody that's making that kind of music mm. has to pass these days. She, you know, yeah. she looks like a you know sort of very kind of regular, homely sort of person, you know, which makes the kind of leching at her even more sort of slightly horrible. You know, yeah, it, it is, yeah. It's, you know, because she's actually really, I mean, you know, in terms of it, things, in a sense, are more advanced in terms of women being allowed to make that kind of music and not having to be sex objects, basically, um, yeah. in terms of like whether she actually comes across. Yeah. I mean, that's the one sort of positive thing I would say about that aspect of it. The weird thing about the, the I mean, the black guys, they're doing this kind of weird robo-dance, actually. I mean, I could sort of plunge down a complete wormhole of the sort of the ancient league, which I talk about in the book, actually, about this kind of incident yeah. between fear of, robots and fear of robots taking over the world and and fear of like black people going to revolt and there's actually all this oh. the historically there's all these strong connections really between between tales of robots and then rising up from their slate in slave enslaved conditions and taking over with the kind of latent fear that black people might do the same you know in in in, in america oh, so it's, it's quite weird there's always a little you know she didn't think you know, that she might have been onto that kelly Marie, or perhaps not but um you, you <laughs> know
3: what um Tonight, I'm actually going to a talk by Animatronic from the Scissor Sisters, yeah. and and if anyone is is well placed to um, talk about any kind of links between robot culture and uh, gay disco, mm. it's her because she's a- she's actually written the book about robots taking over the world. Right. Um, so Why? yeah. Sorry. Just it's just an extraordinary coincidence. No. And the the other thing we we can't not mention the boo boo noise oh, on this no. record, which um, actually that I I, I I do think this record. Killed whatever lingering love of disco I had for a, half a decade or something, right? Yeah, just because because of that that really annoying noise. And um, yeah, because I, I mean, it,
2: the first time we we really heard that would, would have been uh, the year before with "Ring My Bell." Ring Ring my bell. bell
0: no, yeah. I think maybe even further than that. "Love Don't Leave You Anymore," "Rose Royce." It's all over. Ooh, that. Oh, of course, course. I yes, think that's yes, really when it first breaks out. Actually, it's, it's all over it. And then I think by this time, it's yeah, it's got a bit played.
3: It's been used to excess yeah. now, isn't it? Yeah. And um, I actually, I've got to plead guilty, I, I bought a drum machine in the 90s. Yes, you mentioned was, this, Simon, yeah. Oh, well, I've done it on a podcast before. Yeah, well, we'll no, I'll do it quickly. It's one of those ones it has got the circular, the four circular pads, like like an electric hob, and it does go boo-boo if you want it to, Whoa. and I went through a phase. And you do want it to. You do, and I, I went through a phase of bringing it with me to DJ gigs and really pissing people off by adding my own <laughs> percussion over the top of the record. To so which but, songs? Yeah, Oh, absolutely anything, but um, it, it was around apart, the time of. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it was around the time of like the Rapture House of Jealous Lovers, which you know kind of lends itself to extra cowbell and extra boo boo. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but I, I I do think that this if if it if it didn't sort of stir some kind of latent homophobia that I didn't quite know how to put words to at the time, then I th- I certainly think it made me discophobic. I think it made me yeah. think that this this whole disco thing, it's over with. It's got to be you know swept away. Um, mm. Of course, you know, five years later when house music is coming in and suddenly disco seems like the forerunner of everything that's great and wonderful I I, you know completely changed my mind on that but I I think I had a a decade's worth of of cleansing the palate of disco and Feels Like I'm In Love was probably what caused it yeah so the following week Feels Like I'm In Love jumped
2: to number one staying there for two weeks The follow-up, Loving Just For Fun, would only get to number 21 in November of this year and she'd have one more top 30 hit in 1981. After taking a break to have kids, she'd spend the late 80s as a high-energy artist. And to Kevin Keegan's dismay, she's now a blonde.
0: not only a beautiful redhead but also a great dancer and singer and now one of my particular favourites at the moment in the charts from the Nick Straker band are going to take you for a walk in the park
2: After making the schoolboy error of clapping with a microphone in his hand Kev introduces (laughs) one of his favourite songs at the moment A Walk in the Park by the Nick Straker band Formed in London in 1978, the Nick Straker Band were essentially a collaboration between Nick Straker, an original member of the British reggae band Matumbe, who played working men's clubs and British legions with Limmy of Limmy and Family Cooking, and Tony Mansfield, his former roader, who eventually played the same venues with Matt Kassoon and had already had three hits this year with his band New Music and it's up this week from number 28 to number 22 before we go anywhere new music they were fucking mint weren't they
3: they were brilliant and do you know what I had no idea that there was this connection between them and Nick Straker band so that's blown yeah. my mind a little bit yeah yeah. I, I don't think he's actually in this performance but right. yeah yeah. they were fucking great
2: hopefully we'll cover them at
3: some point oh god yeah I mean their, their single Sanctuary I think is one of the greatest or sort of great lost singles of the early 80s yeah fantastic definitely. but yeah. this song I mean, the only thing I've got to, to
2: to chuck into the pot here was I was working at the football programme shop at the time and uh, the other kind of like Saturday lads was this, uh, this like called Melvin. And every time this song came on the radio, which was very often, uh, when the chorus came along, he would sing, a wank in the park, mm-hmm. a shit in the dark. <laughs> and every time I hear that song, that's, that's what the song's about now. Mm. <laughs> it's a you know i it, it, it's it's made this lovely song about you know replenishment and you know finding a bit of solitude to uh, to really find yourself it's just made it something really fucking you know, seeded base bodily
0: functions <laughs> yeah
3: yeah. I think. Do, do, and speaking of speaking of bodily functions, this really is the the poo poo special, isn't it? Because it's got poo poo all over it as well.
0: Mm-hmm. I, do, I mean, I just have to return though to Kevin Keegan's intro here because it's a pretty miserable event. I mean, it's you know you think that being cursed hanging himself was like the kind of saddest event of 1980, but this little intro <laughs> here that he does, Kevin <laughs> Keegan, it's it really it's desperate because he's, no, he's not got Dave Lee Ooh. Travis as a crutch there he's having to do it alone and he can't and it's almost like in that moment what am I going to say how am I going to twist this and it's just like well it's a, it's one of my favourite songs in the charts at the moment and he's like looking up in, in desperation you can see that internally he's having that moment that he had do you remember at half time well, at, at the end of the England-Germany game he so says I just realise I just don't have it at this no. level and he had that kind of very honest sort of retirement I think he's almost internally going through that it's just so miserably inadequate it's like Stephen Gerrard trying to host Saturday Night at the London Palladium or something like that <laughs> it's just desperately desperately bad and he's re, re, cruelly revealed in all his desperate inadequacy
2: yeah, yeah. And I mean, I was really upset that you know it wasn't Lip Up Fatty or the the release of re-release of Paranoid by Black Sabbath. Yeah, yeah. Shame, Kevin, shame.
3: But then Nick Straker does have Kevin Keegan hair, so yes, they, they have that in, in common. It's a real kind of bubble perm special as well as anything else, isn't it? This episode. Mm. Um, the I, only I, thing I, that's I, missing from it is Benny at a Crossroads. <laughs> I'm I'm interested by the appearance of Nick Straker band, who um, much like DLT, just haven't got the memo that it's the '80s yet. Um, they they kind of look like a cross between a bunch of painter and decorators and because of the, the whole dungarees thing and playaway presenters. And I have got I've, I've got to credit my mate Neil Sparnan who watched that with me watched this episode with me the other day for pointing out the playaway thing. They totally do look like playaway presenters. Um but I, I did I I bought this record at the time. Um I it had this kind of weirdly uplifting quality to it that it's almost hard to pinpoint it's, I, I guess you know musically it does literally the, the chords do lift up as it goes through the song um, but it's got the same kind of um, uh, idyllic utopian feel to it as um, uh, Steve Winwood's Ark of a Diver album from around the same time it's got a similar feel to it and a similar, a similar thing that it, it kind of uh, reminds me of Daft Punk it kind of prefigures Daft Punk that kind of um it's not quite disco and it's not quite prog but it's you you can imagine it going with um a sort of montage scene a sort of training montage in an 80s sports movie or something like that but i i don't know i i remember finding it just just somehow really um, invigorating and, and uh, empowering, and it's ridiculous because most people would think it's it's a complete bit of cheese. I,
0: I mean, I'd I never cared for the record, and I can't pretend to care for it now. But what is interesting about it is it seems to have it, it seems to be somebody speaking a kind of Euro English, but in fact, the band are actually from London. But it sounds like somebody yeah. sort of pretending from a Euro perspective, I'm in the dark. It's got this kind of <laughs> you know, and it was very and it was big in Europe, it was a very big record in Europe, ah. but it's reminds really nice. it's really equivalent kind of like Steve McLaren when he was a manager at Eindhoven, whenever he is, and he started speaking in that kind of Dutch English. <laughs> you know, it's almost like they've kind of internalised Europeanism from somewhere.
3: Well, I've, I've got the lyrics in front of me here on the, uh, um, the the camera script from the episode, and when you see it laid bare in in you know black and white in this sort of you know typewriter font here, it sort of, it, it does sort of expose the sheer banality of the lyrics. So it um, they, for, for for the sake of the cameramen, they've they've broken it down very meticulously. It says four bars, four bars, three bars, one bar and two beats and then a walk a walk in the park then one bar and two beats i've got to get some sense back into my mind i'm in the dark one bar and two beats and i can't see where i'm being led and so on and just something about that it, it, it it's almost it's almost like reading it out in a sarcastic voice isn't it when 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 you see it just printed like that and yeah i mean uh, i i think the the tune does all the heavy lifting here there's, there's nothing in it lyrically
2: so you bought this as a 12 year old
3: yeah which um <laughs> You know, there Which is other... quite a
2: commitment at twelve. You know, when you when you're twelve years old and you go into a record shop, particularly, you know, particularly that one record shop in town. Yeah. Uh, and also,
3: part of the thing of buying records in in those days was to show off what you bought to your mates. Yes. I, I, I would have kept this very quiet.
2: Yes. <laughs> yes. Buy it from Woolworths. I have
3: told anyone about this?
0: I'd have bought this more from Woolworths if it was a guilty pleasure like that. And...
3: Yeah. Or or wait a
2: month or two till it was ten p in the paper yeah. shop. <laughs> yeah. But you are, you know, you are really hanging your, your young credibility out on the on the counter, aren't you, when you're, when you're asking for something like this? Presumably dressed up in your rude boy gear.
3: Absolutely, yeah, just hope nobody sees me. If I remember rightly as well, it wasn't just a single, it was a 12-inch on coloured vinyl. I really went oh, for it. Yeah. Oh,
2: oh! Yeah, you'd have a job getting that back on the bus. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, like, yeah you, you run into one of your mates and they're going, oh, what have you got, what have you got? Let's have a look. And it's like, oh. Okay. Yeah, <laughs>
2: no, you're all right, mate. Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. But I, mean, I remember
2: going through a phase at the time that if I did buy something that was, you know, that I was trying to put across as part of me, like, you know, the, this week's number one and everything, I would go, I'd have gone to Fox Records for it uh, in the Victoria Centre. But if I wanted to buy something that was out of my, um, you know, out of what I want to say, so like, for example, um, Ashes to Ashes, which was the previous number one, I went down the other end of the shopping centre where no one else Went and went to Boots wow. and, and bought it from
3: there. So Bowie was Bowie was seen as embarrassing. Yeah, well, not so much embarrassing, but I didn't want
2: I didn't want the glare from a uh, from a, a record store vendor saying, "Well, hang on, you look like that, yeah. but you're buying this." And uh, you know, I couldn't pass myself off as a as a DJ at the time, so you know. So
3: you could you could, ba- <laughs> you could just about buy the first Bowie album where he's got like a blazer and sort of like mod hair and stuff like that, but. Yeah, yeah.
2: So, the following week, a walk in the park nudged up two places to number 20 and stayed there for three weeks. The follow-up, leaving on the midnight train, would only get to number 61 in November of this year. And Nick Straker would go on to work with Linton Quasi Johnson. Wow. I fucking love yeah. those tunes. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking brilliant. And he wrote songs for Jelly Bean and Taylor Dane. Whoa. And, what? Yeah. What He, he did yeah.
3: write... Yeah. What? He wrote Tell It To My know Heart? Which... I don't oh, know which but, yeah. ones. But, I mean, what? Um, Linton Quincy Johnson, what? Was he on forces of victory? I think so, yeah. I'm not sure. Oh, respect to the striker. Wow. But, yeah, he should have
2: gone with a wank in the park or shit in the dark. He really should. <laughs> <laughs>
4: straight good music, a walking in the park. Well, one lady who must be counting her blessings today is a young lady who's been traveling around the world quite a bit. Recently, she was in Nashville and she was approached by a producer with Laurie Stetson and asked if she'd like to audition for the part in a film called Breaking Glass. She did it, she got the part, and that's helped her on her way to no end, although not too many people have seen it yet. The lady's name, of course, is Hazel O'Connor, and here's the current number five sound from her called Eighth Day.
2: on his own tells the story of how hazel o'connor was discovered while a clip of her looking like she's in tron is screened it's actually breaking glass and this is the first song from it eighth day born in coventry in 1955 hazel o'connor ran away from home at the age of 16 to be a singer in german clubs for u.s servicemen before joining a dance troupe in tokyo and beirut On her return, she became an actress and auditioned for Benny Hill's Hills Angels, but didn't get the job when she refused to cop off with him in his flat and pushed him over and fucked off. Well done, Hazel. A big break came when she beat out Toya Wilcox for the lead role in Breaking Glass, a film about the rise and fall of a punkish female singer-songwriter that's about to be released at the end of the month. She offered to write the soundtrack for it and this is the first cut from the soundtrack LP and it's up this week from number 13 to number 5. Okay, before we go into the song, we have to talk about the wrongness of Dave Lee Travis on the introduction. He claimed that she was discovered in Nashville and he assumes that it's, you know, Nashville in uh, in Tennessee. Uh, no, it was actually the Nashville Rooms, the punk club in West Kensington. Oh, for fuck's and sake. the man in the Stetson he refers to may have been the executive producer of the film Breaking Glass,
3: Dodie No. Ooh. So, Hazel O'Connor... Well, um, it makes sense to me that uh, I, I didn't know, but it makes sense that Toya was up for the role in Breaking Glass yeah, because yeah. I've, I've got written down here that Hazel O'Connor is a poor man's Toya, who in turn was an even poorer man's Susie Sue, um, and maybe mm. maybe you've got to fit Lena Lovitch somewhere into that equation as well. I don't know, but yes. I, I'm not shaking Wilcox. <laughs> shaking Wilcox. I'm, I'm just not having it. I, it's, there's something so Amdram about. Hazel O'Connor, these, you know, the idea that punk equates to these kind of mad, stary eyes. Uh, mm. it's, it's basically... It's Snarly mouth. Yeah, and I've, I've never... I mean, I've not seen Breaking Glass. I, I don't know if I'm missing anything. Um, but just from the song itself, it seems like a kind of Jeff Wayne's War of the World idea of punk, if you know what I mean. Yes. And, um, and that whole, the whole message, you know, machine just got upset. And, you know, this... <laughs> I, I, I guess it's, it's topical now, right, guys? It makes you a think. A problem man had not foreseen us yet. Yeah, yeah, all of that. And oh, I, I mean, the the idea of um, punk being somehow that that kind of uh, didactic, educational thing, rather rather than mm. a, a kind of nihilistic scream. It, it's it just it just felt wrong. And um, the, I but clearly uh, the people in the audience. They're buying it because they're pogoing like crazy, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. It has to be said, though, that, you know, a few of them are pogoing possibly so they can see
2: themselves on the monitors. <laughs> but,
3: There's kind of a lot of pogoing, but not a lot of looking at the uh, looking at Haze. Yeah. So punk has been around for, you know, the idea of punk has been overground for four years by now. And, you know, yes. it's just accepted that when a vaguely punky record comes on, that's what you do, you know. Yeah.
2: Well, it's either that or that dance where you kind of like kick. And wave your uh, windmill your arms about, yeah. Which wasn't going to happen on this episode of no. Top of the Pops because you know cameras would have got broken.
3: I mean, I wonder if something started gobbing at her and had to be ejected from the premises.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: maybe, maybe so, yeah. David. I, I mean, to be—I completely agree with Simon. I mean, in my notes, are very similar. Really, it's—it's. It's, um, I mean, she's not just a, sort of a, a poor man's toy. I mean, you know, she's an absolute. Sort of wretchedly, sort of down to the bones of his ass, homeless man's Lena Lovitch really like <laughs> people, you know that kind of gulping and gurning, yeah. and just, you know as a kind of signifier of punkiness. Plus, you know you have your hair as a peroxide mess, and therefore, and like Simon says, you know this is signifies punk. Meanwhile, you know you've got this bunch of nondescript session musicians kind of sawing away in the background. It's it's just and an, 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 yes, and the whole sort of pomp. Pop, you know, sort of pomp punk type conceit of the whole thing of the lyric and everything like that. I, be I mean, I used to hate yeah. like the National Front at the time. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it, it just yeah, it just dreadful. It's that kind of rock follies type take on. on like the kind punk. of worse yeah. than Hitler. Yeah. yeah, 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 pretty much. Yeah, yeah, um, or worse than Martin Webster. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it just, it just felt like the most flagrant appropriation. You know, the whole thing. It was just, you know,
2: because. It needs to be said. There's still a lot of punks knocking about. I mean, I used to go um, after Top of the Pops was on on a Thursday night. Uh, I'd go to Top Valley Community Centre in my <laughs> in my black and white check tie, and <laughs> my grandpa's gardening hat. And uh, you know, half of the half of the youth club would be
3: mods and rude boys, and the other half would be punks. It's weird. We we didn't have any punks in my school. Uh, no, you? no, no. I think, you know, I'm not saying that, that um, we were super forward-looking or anything like that, but we, you know, my generation seemed to have left that behind, pretty sharpish. I do remember two years earlier seeing punks for the first time and, you know, relatively late in British terms, 1978, um, on the streets of Cardiff and the streets of Barry, and being terrified. But by 1980, even though, again, it was only four, three, four years previous, it seemed like the desperately distant past. And And in a way, that was emphasised for me by the fact that there was a charity shop on High Street in Barrie that had um, a few Sex Pistols singles in the window, um, including Silly Thing with that kind of fake popcorn um, cover. And um, it had faded in the sun by being left in um, a stupid place to leave a record. So, you know, vinyl collectors will know that, but clearly the, the old dears who were running the shop didn't know that. So it, it it's almost as if punk was visibly fading away before our eyes. And, you know, it 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 would it, it almost... It, it's kind of antiquity... and um, it's, it's antiquity had been exaggerated by, by being sun-bleached in that way. So anything else to say about Hazel? What's the script saying, Simon? Um, I honestly don't think... Anything of interest, but I'll just double check. Mm. No, nothing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we've we've, do, we've done this
2: episode just because we can talk about the script, and then now we're doing it. We realise there's nothing really in it.
3: I it's got the lyrics. Um, um, for this one, no, it hasn't. I don't know why. Maybe because it's it just says v, just... it says VT. So I guess yeah. it means that uh, it's already been recorded, and mm. the ca- yeah, the yeah. Crew, there you go. So then, yes. you know, the, the camera crew don't have to. Worry yeah. about yeah. where they're
0: zooming in on this occasion. Or oh, it just means it's just very tedious. tedious. <laughs> Type is lost will to
1: lose. <laughs> yes.
2: So the following week, eighth day stayed at number five, its highest position in the charts. The follow-up, Give Me an Inch, stalled at number forty-one in November of this year, but she'd have two top ten hits in early nineteen eighty-one with D-Days and Will You. Two months after this appearance, she toured the album with support from an unknown band called Duran Duran. Set me bound, what have done?
1: There's not a world, nobody left, nobody right
4: uh, Ladies, taking over there. That's Hazel O'Connor doing very well in the charts of the moment. And talking of the charts, of course, now on our regular new format, Top of the Pops, we right find how you're used to, we, of course, have a look at the charts. So let's start at number 30 right now. <laughs> Sleepwalk from Ultravox is number 30. At 29, you've got to be a hustler, Sue Wilkinson. Grace Jones with Private Life down to 28. And up three places to 27, best friend the beat. Highest new entry is at 26. Randy Crawford one day I'll fly away. Ian Jury wants to be straight at 25. Paranoid with Black Sabbath, up three places. And at number 23, funking for Jamaica with Tom Brown. Nick Straker's band, A Walk in the Park, is up to 22. One place jump for Shaking Stevens with Marie Marie. And at number 20, it's still rock and roll to me from Billy Joel. And hang on to your armchair, fellas, because dancing to that number, who else? It's Lexington. What's the matter with the clothes on? Where can't
1: you tell that your tie's too white?
2: After the rundown from 30 to 20, Travis advises the dads to get a firm grip of their armchairs as he introduces Legs and Co. dancing to Still Rock and Roll to Me by Billy Joel. Born in the Bronx in 1949, Billy Joel's first contact with the music industry was as a session pianist for Shadow Morton, the producer of the Shangri-Las, and he may have played on Leader of the Pack. He claims that he's he either played on the demo or the actual song, he, he can't remember. He spent the rest of the 60s in a British Invasions covers band, a late 60s band called The Hassles, and a psychedelic proto-metal duo called Attila, which split up when he ran off with his partner's missus. You, you heard their album? No, is it good? It's fucking insane. Wow. After a suicide attempt, which involved drinking a bottle of furniture polish, which he later said he took because it looked tastier than bleach.
1: I'm
0: Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because
1: you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me.
2: He launched his solo career in 1970, but it wouldn't be till March of 1978 when he first made the charts over here, when Just The Way You Are got to number 19. This is the follow-up to All for Lena, which got to number 40 in April of this year and has already been a US number one for two weeks. Currently, it's stuck at number 20, so there's only one thing for it time for Legs and Co to work their magic upon it. So where do we start here, chaps? Do we start with the with the song or the routine? We haven't done Legs and Co for a while, have we?
3: I was going to say, uh, I'd love to know who's in charge of the costume here, but because I have the camera script I can tell you exactly who's in charge. It's somebody with a brilliant name of Nicholas Rocker, Yes, um, yes. Which, which actually sounds like a member of the Hives or something. Um, but what they've gone for here is it's almost like they've grabbed Two halves of two outfits. The the dresses they're wearing look kind of like you know it's kind of rainbow or sort of reggae type you know sort of uh, reggae colours and they've got white cowboy boots. So it's kind of this weird reggae line line dancing crossover going on. Yeah, here. I've got I've
2: got cowgirls on my uh, on my notes. <laughs> exactly. In the war for America. <laughs> um, Actually, what 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 the, what they look like? You you know when the when you're a kid and the ice cream van comes along. And your mum goes out for it and she comes back with these really manky ice lollies that were um, the, the only things that were left when you wanted a fucking cider barrel or a
3: strawberry mitha. Yeah. They're them. And all the colours are kind of blended into each other and a slightly wrong. Kind yeah. Of are, yeah,
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they're trying to make a statement. I mean, you know, it's still rock and roll to me that you can take something as diverse as country and western and this kind of maybe sort of Afro reggae type look. But the main thing is all these different styles they're talking about. You got this, you got that. It's all reducible to rock and roll. It's all rock and roll to me. Maybe that is what happened. Yeah. Which of course is a terrible, terrible thing to do. You know, it's all still rock and roll to me. You know, it's like some sort of reggae, you know, saying post punk doom core um you know after it's all reggae to me i mean you know it's just like you know why is rock and roll got this centralized that everything's ultimately reduced to rock and roll they, that's what i'd like to know billy
3: they could they, mm. i mean if, if they were doing that they could have really pushed the boat out and gone the full fin- yeah they really the really cool village people yeah. with it and have you know yes w- one member looks like a sort of 50s rocker and one looks like a hippie yeah. and you know all that kind of stuff but at which point so, yeah. i think
0: mr rocker would have like pointed out the budget basically
3: <laughs> yes. yeah 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 <laughs> um I, by the way, I just want to quickly uh, rewind to the chart rundown that, that we heard. Where, yes, uh, please do. Just because, you know, you, you get a feel of, of what's in the chart, and, you know, what, what we could... It's almost like, here's what you could have won. Um, and of course, there yes. There's some fasc- fascinating records like Sue Wilkinson, um, You've Got to Be a Hustler, which I think did get... Yes, that, which that was have already yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, and DLT does that awful... I, I think it's awful anyway, of um, putting the song name first and then saying with... Than the band name he says, and th- and then it's paranoid with Black Sabbath. No, yeah, it's not paranoid with Black Sabbath, it's Black Sabbath with Paranoid for fuck's sake. Um, yeah. and
2: also that makes it sound like an- another Alan Partridge pitch at Tony Hair's, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Oh, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, mental illness with Black Sabbath. Um so yeah. Uh, yeah, and and Tom Brown, Funky for Jamaica. So, which again, that maybe maybe Funky for Jamaica might have uh, made some sense of the of the reggae dresses that uh maybe got going on. Uh, but, yeah. I mean, but the fact that the song stuck at number twenty yeah. it doesn't make
2: it a prime candidate for uh, being on top no, of the box it's not it? one.
3: And as, as David says, it's this kind of angry dad mentality to the lyrics. It's kind of so bitter mm. and reductive. Basically, Billy Joel saying. I don't understand new stuff and it makes me angry. And and yes. uh, the, the worrying realisation I, I had when I was thinking about that is that that's me now. That is how I feel mm. about stuff now. I don't understand new stuff and it makes me angry. Yeah.
2: Well, apparently he wrote the song when he read uh, a, an album review uh, by a music journalist and uh, he, he read the whole review and and couldn't decide or didn't know what what their band actually sounded like. Wow. And so we said, oh, it's still rock and roll to me.
3: Bloody poor Morley. Mm. So, yeah, so, it? so it's all your fault. <laughs> yeah, with Legs and
0: Co, you've still got the same thing of how something manages to be sexist and sexless at the same time.
2: <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, they've mixed in a few kind of like gymnastics routines into this, haven't they? But, but particularly ones that kind of like show off draws. <laughs> but this song, um, we've seen the metamorphosis... I think he's in a transition phase here, isn't he? He's been that piano man, and now he's starting to go back to his roots of uh, banging on the piano to... uh to the Shangri-Las, yeah. Do which this kind a will...
3: retro pastiche because then he, he did. Uh, what was that a cappella one he did? Uh, the longest, longest time. time. Well, yeah, and, I'm, I'm, um, I'm, and, I'm... and and tell her about it. that yes. Motown so I loved. That was a brilliant. to yes. tell her about yeah, it. I totally that agree with you on that one. And of course, the the whole Four Seasons thing with Uptown Girl. Yes,
2: yeah. So he's yeah. He's, 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 he's in a period of transition, uh, whereas um, Legs and Co are kind of uh, just doing their thing, really, aren't they? Oh, no, another week, another song.
0: Yeah. But I think with Vigil, B- 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 as well as that kind of retro thing that he's talking about in the pastiche, it's also like the he's showing his reactionary colours as well, you know, as Simon mentioned, you know, yes. in terms of like, you know, that this album we didn't get, and then later on, we didn't start the fire and all that kind of stuff, so...
2: So the following week it's still rock and roll to me jumped five places to number 15 and would get as high as number 14. He then went on a run of eight singles that got nowhere in the UK charts until he dropped Uptown Girl which stayed at number one for five weeks in late 1983. What was happening in 1983 to make the British public suddenly crave Billy Joel?
3: Decent song. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're
2: right.
4: Talking about the new sound funny, but it's still rock the road to me. Great bit of gear there. Billy Joel still rock and roll to me. And, of course, ladies and looking like an explosion in a paint factory. Aren't they beautiful? Gay colours. That's what Top of the Pops is all about. And, of course, charts. Let's continue now on from number 20, a little bit further up the charts. 19 this week. Roxy Music and Oh Yeah. ELO all over the world are down to 18. Up 17 places. Elvis Presley and Sony Love at 17. At 16, Gimme the Night from George Benson. The Gap Band with hoops upside your head at 15. And at 14, Upside Down from the lovely Diana Ross. Sheena Easton jumps 5 places with Modern Girls at 13 and at 12, up 7 for The Clash, Bank Robber. Can't Stop the Music for Village People is up from 17 to 11 this oh, yes. The fun hasn't stopped yet. Don't go out and put the kettle on yet, Mother, because... No, we won't, folks, because we're here now to tear the hairs out of David Travis's chest and beard. Ouch! But while we do Ouch! 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 How about Ouch. a few songs, at least one, Ouch. by Clough Ratchard. Thank you, Hank. You're a wonderful, You're warm person.
2: After running down the charts from 19 to 11, Travis gets his chest hairs and beard pulled by none other than Hank Marvin, guitarist of the Shadows, who introduces Dreaming by Cliff Richard. Born Harry Webb in Lucknow, India in 1940. Fuck this, I am not going to do a Potter history of Cliff Richard because people already moan that we go on for too long. So suffice to say, Cliff Richard has racked up 124 top 40 hits, 68 of which got into the top 10 and 14 went to number one. He spent a combined 18 and a half years in the top 40 and his 160 performances were an all-time top of the pops record. I I can't believe it's taken 15 episodes before he turned up. This is the follow-up to Carey, which got to number four in March of this year, and it was co-written by none other than The Old Sailor.
3: Yay! <laughs> Cliff Richard. I mean, no, first things first, Hank Marvin. Fucking all the stars are turning out tonight, aren't they? Yeah, now, that's a bit confusing, because um, if you're watching that at the time, you think, well, obviously, the Shadows are going to be on the show later on, mm. but, but they're not. But I can exclusively reveal from my camera script oh. that they were being filmed for an extra thing. At the end of the show, after they finished with the Top of the Pop stuff, uh, they were being filmed doing um, a cover version of Jean-Michel Jarre's Equinox. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, which I've not heard. And I'm not in no particular hurry no. to hear. But I don't know if that was... I, I don't think it was for... Um, Top of the Pops itself—it must have been something that was going to be dropped into another sort of tea-time variety show. Oh, two Ronnies I, I, or something, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because I—I I skimmed through I'm on the uh, TVDB list of everything that's ever been on Top of the Pops. I, I skip through the next three or four episodes after this one, and the shadows do not turn up on it. So no. uh, obviously the, um, the the camera crews are multitasking and moonlighting and um, Hank happened to be there. But I don't think he actually says, uh, and we've got Hank Marvin from The Shadows, does he? No, he, he just, just pitches up. It's this, this, so, so for anybody under the age of 30, you've just got this weird little guy with a centre parting and big glasses looking a bit like whats the name from coronation Street just yes. um, coming in and, you know, sort of being a bit of a sex pest and pulling hair and... Oh it's you know, about time isn't it?
2: but this is how it yeah, yeah. feels it's Travis. Taking so
3: yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> this but the thing is, right, see, I'm a bit older and I have got a slight advantage here. Um, Clank Marvin um, and Cliff Richard used to have a kind of weekly variety show and Hank Marvin um, well, his main contribution to the Shadows Apache that is a genuinely kind of groundbreaking record actually yeah brilliant and it, it record. has his place yeah, yeah. in the whole kind of rock scene of things however but he actually would, would have been known he, he, his name it would have been self-evident to audience at that point who he was because they were on telly every week and you know while he can sort of twang a mean guitar, I mean the comedy is wretched. But he was he was supposed to be a kind of comedy sidekick was Hank Marvin, and his catchphrase it wasn't even catchphrase. It was a cough. He'd go, and everyone would like you know fall about in the aisles. Um, that was his that was his thing. And it, um, they did this true. I mean, as you can well, it's, it's, you know, it's it's that kind of horrible comedy you get from people of a certain generation that think they're funny. It's got the contours of sort of banter and wit or whatever, but you actually analyse what they're actually saying, it's, it's just incoherent nonsense you know it was the kind of thing where it's funny to say it's mispronounced you called him Clough Rutchard, you know that's hilarious because DLT was always the kind of oh, person who would call Kylie Minogue Kiddie Minigi, you know and it's just like yeah that's fucking hilarious um, and of course yeah and then later on became Jehovah's Witness um, Hank Marvin so or was it Scientology
2: yeah, yeah. Well, can, France, imagine, you can imagine you yeah. imagine opening your door and there's bloody <laughs> Hank Marvin with a copy of the watchtower and he starts pulling at your chest here
3: you oh. feel a bit cheated, like, you know, you've got a choice of Hack Marvin or Prince, and it's, it's oh, Hack oh Marvin gosh, as you do i And doing the rundown...
2: Sorry. sorry Simon, can I just jump in? Equinox yeah, yeah. is currently at number 54 in the charts, and uh, the following week it would go up to number 50, and then just drop out of the charts. So, ah, right. I, I've got to make mention that I, I'm actually looking at the official charts here, and in 1986, I'd never, I'd, I'd never knew this, uh, the, the
3: Shadows did two BBC theme tunes at the time. I'd like to take a guess what they were? Oh, God. Um, That's Life and Howard's Way. No, that wasn't even the right era. No, I don't know. I don't know. Well, you got Howard's Way. Was that one of them? Yes. Oh, my God. David,
2: Shot you to guess dark. what the other one, 1986. December oh, of 1986. Eastenders. Correct. Why? <laughs> fucking hell! I bow Bloody to your two. I know some fucking intelligent people who just I don't know, I that just know <laughs> the fucking biggest <laughs> load of trivial shit. Going. So anyway, Cliff. It opens with a really nasty close-up of the pair of shorts that the keyboard player is wearing.
3: The, sh- the shadows weren't even in the charts, but DLT is given his little rundown yeah. of what is in the charts. And again, there's, there's yet more. Here's what you could have won material, which just makes... So you've got ELO doing all over the world, which I fucking love. And then you've got <laughs> yes. Diana Ross upside down, which is one of the greatest records ever made, which just yes. throws into even sharper relief how bleak this Cliff yes. Richard record is.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it is truly bleak, yeah. And those shorts, they are they are shit. They mm. speak absolutely 1980. I mean, you could sort of, they are 1980, yeah. Not, not even 1980s, but 1980, those shorts. Oh, even ni-
3: 1978, yeah. uh, um, Mario Kempes, yeah. that kind of, those short, very short shorts, the silky silk ones, you know. Uh, but, yeah. but, that, but now they've kind of <laughs>
0: migrated into the world of top of the pops, I suppose. That's yeah. see by 1980. So what What the um, fuck is going
3: on? So you've got this keyboard keyboardist, and from the waist up, he's wearing kind of smart kind of dinner dress, you know, uh, as if he's going to an award ceremony. And then from the waist down, he looks like he's going out for a jog. Well, uh, what you actually, what those what shorts
2: actually look like, they're the ones that Alan Partridge wore. In yes. that ep- In that episode where him and mm. um, his assistant. Yeah, Tony have, a's, yeah. yeah, when him and his assistant have uh, problems with, uh, yeah. with the telephone and, uh, you know, yeah. ending with the line, the boys are back in the barracks. Yeah.
3: The inner underpant lining yeah. has perished. Yes yes, yes. yes, yes, and uh, yeah. the,
2: the inner underpant lining of this song uh, kind of like, went a long time ago, didn't it?
1: Oh
3: the piss it, it, it,
2: soaked in a lining of Cliff Richard is exposed <laughs> in this no, song. I feel
3: it's 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 no wired for sound. That's for sure. That that would be a year later. Oh, um, the thing thing with Cliff around this time. I can't wait to talk time. about that one. Oh, <laughs> a, that's a tune, uh, <laughs> particularly the video. But um, Cliff around this time was considered a peculiar presence in pop. You know that he was still. Yeah hanging around at his age his his previous album 1979 was called rock and roll juvenile you know making a joke out the whole thing um and when he released that, he was 38 years old. Um, yes, he's, he's 39 by the time of this song, "Dreaming." And I know we've done this Jesus. kind of this this awful yeah. kind of memento mori thing before in previous episodes, where we realised that people we thought were ancient were actually younger than we are now. But um, oh, to, to, there's a belting one coming up soon, Simon. Oh, right, yeah. But to put that in perspective, and too much fucking perspective. Um, <laughs> Justin Justin Timberlake is 36 now pharrell mm. williams is 44 now none of Jeez. us think of them as in any way old men cliff richard was 38 and it's like oh, all right granddad what are you doing on top yes. of the box seriously
0: i mean in the early 60s in melody maker there was a headline it said um, ringo too old to rock at 24. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 24 yes 24 i think it's i mean the thing is the reason that yeah he did have that kind of cash in, he put that album out that simon mentioned and it got, got a kind of you know it got reviewed in enemy quite Chanty because it got a lot of kudos for we don't talk anymore yes. which was a year earlier which was definitely one of his very best singles you know mm. why it should have occurred at that particular point or whatever but but this this particular it's just this the remainder of those 18 and a half years whatever and the chance so much of it is just stuff like this it's almost like a kind of a bit like David Bowie in a sense. They're two time lords, as it were, sort of floating <laughs> around pop. Um, except one has an absolute shrewd sense of zeitgeist and a kind of absolutely brilliant, sort of, you know, perfectly sort of uh, in possession of his crap and everything like that. And the other one is just absolutely clueless. He doesn't have a, you know, everything about him, you know, he, he dresses in a sort of, you know, from the keyboard his shorts, you know, to his own particular garb. It just feels vaguely kind of rock and rollish. But not rooted in any clue about what's actually going on or what yeah. the significances are or these little kind of
2: signifiers of the way that you dress and the way that you sound and stuff. Yeah.
0: He just has no clue.
2: No. It, and this is very Radio 2, isn't it? And Radio yeah. 2 in the old manner.
3: It is, but the thing is, We Don't Talk Anymore is directly responsible for this song because it was co-written and produced by Alan Tarney, who um, then went on to, to do this one. He got the gig for this one on the back... In fact, he did the whole album that, that this song is from on the back of having... Some succeeded with We Don't Talk Anymore um, but the thing the thing that fascinates me about Cliff is that it's his signature moves his dance moves mm, mm, that he but does, that's another thing yeah, he, yeah. Do, he does that thing of getting low and doing danger dancing doing these kind of <laughs> danger, these, dancing. danger dancing this kind of as if he's telling telling us um, a scary story to children and he sort of waves his hand across the camera in yes, that way of, like, yeah you know, exactly, that's, that's Devil Woman
2: for you isn't it yeah, he, yeah, he's still yeah. locked into that Devil Woman he is groove. locked
3: into Devil Woman
2: yeah. Oh. yeah still haunted and you know his his previous single Carrie that's I pretty much like that
3: yeah I mean you know that's got something to it sort of missing person story and all that mm. uh, it's quite unusual for Cliff to be doing but this is more bang in the middle of his zone, isn't it Dreaming it's just yeah. it's very nothing Ian a David says very Radio too.
2: yeah I mean um, you know before we move away from the from the keyboard play with the shorts we have to we're not yet that he's wearing matching gloves the gloves match with the sauce. Uh, and they're not even fingerless gloves, which would have been acceptable for 1980, what with Madness and everything.
3: I mean, possibly he was a very serious uh, keyboard musician and he's just sort of distancing himself, you know, by wearing these kind of surgical gloves. You know, I, I'm not touching, I'm, not, I'm having nothing to do with this. Yeah. I'm forensi- forensically removing myself from this Cliff Richard atrocity. And also the keyboard player's hanging, ro- almost hanging off the end <laughs> of the stage. So there's
2: some of the kids there who are standing there and they've got they've got this satiny arse right in their face.
3: Yeah, it's not (laughs) right, is it? It's not right. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's something now in kind of BBC um, safeguarding or compliance yeah. uh, legislation yeah. that specifically mentions yeah.
0: that. And again, I bet that sat in the ass wasn't in there just for like the two or three minutes of the duration of the song. They'll have been like yeah. all kind of crap from the floor manager yeah. and they're like, oh, let me do that again. Okay, everybody kind of take their yeah. keep their place for 10, 15 minutes while we fix the lights. Yeah. So that sat in the ass would have probably lingered traumatically in their faces.
2: Yeah. Simon, are there any uh, any uh, kind of like interesting notes for Cliff Richard's performance such as he's here now send the helicopters out
3: <laughs> no there aren't no there aren't sadly
2: uh, and Cliff um, Cliff's got a kind of a modified Saturday night fever rig out hasn't he but it's been it's been tailored for the 80s no for the eighties, fuck it I'm saying oh, it I'm again <laughs> because you know it's white Uh, And he's got an open neck shirt, but it's, you know, everything, the lapels have come in, uh, the the trouser legs have been slightly tightened. You know, he's making a smooth transition, isn't he?
3: Yeah, I suppose. But in in a way, going back to that whole thing about people seeming old before their time in those days... um, I think he is, is probably more a victim of it than anyone else because he went so middle of the road so quickly, you know, around the time of the sort of late late 60s and the whole Eurovision thing with it, um, congratulations and all that. And he, he was so kind of mum-friendly, uh, even by the early 70s, That wh- whereas there are there plenty of people the same age as him who were still probably rocking out at the age of 38 and no, nobody thought anything of it. But um, with his centre parting, I mean, he's, uh, even his hair is barely recognisable from the kind of young Cristiano Ronaldo lookalike that, that he was. Uh, yes, and know, he really him, was, wasn't he, he? he? Oh, yeah. If you look at footage of him on Oh Boy in 1958 yeah. or whatever it is, it is, it is Cristiano Ronaldo. It's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the following week, Dreaming nudged up to
2: number eight, its highest position, and it also got to number 10 in America. Fucking hell. The follow-up, suddenly, a duet with Olivia Newton-John in the movie Xanadu Made it to number 15 in November of this year
4: <laughs> There yeah. is Riff then and I don't believe this, Keegan You're, This is a lot, what's the idea of that? Well, I've got to get away from my, my morning breakfast show now. And don't forget to watch tomorrow because I've got the competitions for the ladies and everything. Your DLT, really? Yes. Listen, incidentally, have you got a record out at the moment by any chance? I have. It's shooting up the charts. From number 181 went down to 200 this week. <laughs> Silly yeah. thing. Yeah, Listen, sure. if you're going to take my job over with my beard, pal, I can tell you that I'm a bit of an ace at football. Watch this. Cop for this. Hey, none of that body contact. I don't like that physical Not with contact me. me. Yeah. No, I don't like all that. So. I wouldn't mind a bit of physical contact, like a peck on the cheek from our next lady though. She is doing very well. Two records in the charts. It's Sheena Easton and Modern film.
2: Travis is interrupted by Kev in a massive beard who looks like a Marxist with a perm. Paul Breitner. Yes, he really does. <laughs> Travis responds by asking Kev how well his latest single is doing and then demonstrates his football prowess by heading a ball while Keegan Keegan basically nudges him off it, doesn't he? He doesn't lose that competitive spirit for one fucking moment, does he? <laughs> Fighting with Billy Bremner, elbowing Dave Lee Travis. It's, it's all the same to him. Finally, Travis mentions that he'd like some physical contact with the next artist, oh. and then
3: reins himself in by saying, "Like a peck on the cheek." It's, it is total partridge. So he goes, he goes, no body contact, and then he goes, "I, I wouldn't yes. mind. I wouldn't mind a bit of Dead. body contact." In the form of a peck, of, peck on the cheek for my next guest. It is pure Partridge, isn't it? It, really it is.
2: is. It really is. And the artist in question is Sheena Easton with her new single, Modern Girl. Born Sheena Orr in North Lanarkshire in 1959, Sheena Easton was studying speech and drama teaching and singing in a club band when she appeared in an episode of The Big Time, the BBC documentary series fronted by Esther Ransom where members of the public were given the chance to do a high-profile job. During the show, Easter met and sang with Dusty Springfield and Lulu and eventually landed a contract with EMI. Her debut single, Modern Girl, only got to number 56 in April of this year. But when her episode of The Big Time was broadcast in July, her second single, 9 to 5, got to number 3 a month later. And it's still in the top 10 this week at number 4. One rush re-release later and it's up this week from number 18 to number 13. I mean... That remark that Dave Lee Travis made—it doesn't help that he makes those remarks at the most unassuming women <clears throat> who are not who are not kind of like being about the sex.
3: Yeah, you're right. They're not put themselves out there as sex objects, are they? They're not. No. They're not kind of sleazy hot mamas or whatever. You know, it's just. No. You know, kind of. No, it's, it's, fairly it's not seen a No, is it? it's not. Uh, so yeah, I mean, if if he's saying that in public in front of the camera, God only knows what he's like in the corridors. You know what I mean? But- yeah. Well, no, I mean, we we do know, don't we? But anyway, yeah.
2: Yes.
0: She's like sort of young Daily Mail reader 1980, isn't she, Sheena mm. Reason. And she's brought into being by Esther Anson, who at that point has massive clout. I mean, that's life and all that kind of stuff. And it's almost like pretty much a fait accompli, that once she's featured in that way, you know, it's not going to be kind of plucky underdog or whatever. She's just going to kind of shit from a great height on everything and everybody else. And now at this point, she's absolutely dominating the charts. Oh, isn't is. she she's got two singles in the top ten. And, of course, it's the most... It is very sort of vague, sort of fair, you know, but and, and contradictory as well. You know, modern girl and a Baby mm. takes the while well, she's shaking wax. The uh, <laughs> it's,
2: it's, um, she's covered all spheres of, of uh, early eighties womanhood here, hasn't she? Someone who stays at home and someone who goes out. Yeah. <laughs> what else is
3: there?
0: Yes, absolutely. Going. say absolutely. There's no in between.
3: Huh. So. Um, It's it's funny, you know, you you mentioned the whole thing about Esther Ransom Mm -hmm. uh, and the big time making her into a star. That sort of thing was... Almost unheard of at the time. I mean, now that the phenomenon of, uh, yeah. of of pop stars being made by TV is just kind of par for the course. To the extent that yes. to the extent that it's actually started failing now. You know, yeah. um, There's about ten years where it was actually nailed on that if you won the X Factor, you'd at least at least mm. for about six months be a star. Um, and and maybe even get a, a sustainable career out of it. But nothing yeah. I don't I, I don't know if anything like this had happened prior to Sheena Easton. Maybe maybe you can think of an example. So yeah, it was it was a it was a weird not, thing. No, not
2: in a competition. I mean, the Kelly Marie, you know, opportunity not. Right. Well, but that's, yeah, that's a different thing entirely, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I guess not. Yeah, I suppose opportunity not. But yeah, I suppose that was more variety performances than pop stars usually. But um, this song, uh, yeah, it, it does. It describes a woman who who does the walk of shame with pride and and who who, who turns up to work after a one night stand wearing last night's clothes, and like, you know, what of it, you know, and, um, you know, somebody who haters would describe as a dirty stop out in, in the old language, um, Indeed, yes, so, yes. so it's, it's really quite a sort of bold, forward-looking, empowered lyric in a way, but it doesn't it doesn't seem to match with, it doesn't match with the feel of the song, does it, because she, no, she's so it's kind it's of, jaunty, isn't it? it's jaunty, and, and she's so kind of mumsy in her jumpsuit, she looks like an escaped mm. Nolan sister,
2: Yes, she really does. Yeah, or it's a really important night at the bingo. <laughs> you know the jack the jackpot's gone up to five hundred pounds or something. Did you notice someone pogoing to Sheena? Yes. Well, They're- actually, mo- mo- pogoing and moon stomping. Yeah, yeah. I love that in top of the Pops. I love when people do that. It's like okay, you're not. You know, you haven't got the Cockney rejects or bad manners. I'm just going to dance how I dance anyway to any fucking thing and I don't care. Just to Brilliant. make sure my mates notice me on the telly. I, yeah. I, I wonder if he got any shit at school the next day for <laughs> moonstomping to Sheena Easton. I don't
3: know. If it's my school, we think they're a legend for doing that, to yeah, be honest with you. Yeah,
2: definitely, yeah.
3: Just even having two records in the chart was quite a noteworthy thing at the time. A huge you- deal. Yeah, you you normally only got to do that if you were a the jam or b you just died. You yes, know? yeah, definitely. Anything else to say? Anything in nah. the notes, Simon? Nah. Oh, come no. on in the notes. Right, I tell you one thing I noticed about this 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 whole episode. In fact, is that they're fading the songs out really quickly, aren't they? I, I think there was this lasted about a minute and a bit. Didn't? Yeah, they? I, th- they th- they I think there was at least about. another verse and chorus left of this. Yeah. And um, there's there's nothing in the notes notes for that. I I wonder if, you know... Well,
0: it's to make room for the sketches. It's to make room for the sort of little pattern and bite routines between...
3: Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah On the top bants between uh, Keggy Keeble yeah. and DLT, yeah. I, I find it infinitely preferable to... Uh, to
2: 9 to 5. Yeah. Maybe she was thinking of a trilogy or something because, you know, <laughs> she, she's singing about someone who's single in her early 20s and she's copped off with someone at the beginning of the song. At the end of the song, he's come back and she's gone, no, mate, I'm stopping at home to watch, I don't know, uh, Call My Bluff or something. <laughs> so the first song's about a, a woman, presumably, in her early 20s. The second song, 9 to 5, is about a married woman. Maybe there was a third single rattling about about being a non or,
3: Come on, I'll do your research. What was the third single? Uh,
2: the next single was "One Man Woman." Oh yeah. Oh. So so therefore, you know, she's maybe it's about woman in middle age, and uh, you know, her husband's ran off with a barmaid or something, and she's like, "No, I can't be bothered with blokes. I've had one. That's enough." I'm washing. That's that's the last load of pants I wash for any fucker, maybe. <laughs> Which was the name of the fourth so, single, yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> so the following week, Modern Girl jumped up to number 10 and would get as high as number 8. And the follow-up one-man woman got to number 14 in November of this year. James Bond was waiting. And of course, you know, um, 9 to 5 was a was a big hit in America. Morning Train, as they had to call it there. Yes, they did, yeah, because of Dolly Parton. So, yeah, so we go, I mean, we go on about the British invasion and we talk about, um, you know, Duran Duran and the Culture Club. In actual fact, it was, it was Cliff and Sheena who, um, who, you know, made the
3: beachhead first. The Scottish-Indian invasion.
2: Yes. <laughs> Thrown themselves over a fucking mine so a flock of seagulls could run over them. It's typical, <laughs> isn't it? It's just
3: typical. Sheena Easton is British when she succeeds, Scottish when she fails. Yes.
4: <laughs> she <don't feel laughs> world, now, no man, she's the modern girl number thirteen, isn't she? Just you're tuned to top of the pops, of course. What else? And here are the beat at twenty-seven with best friend.
2: This reminds us that we're watching Top of the Pops and introduces Best Friend by The Beat. Formed in Birmingham in 1978, The Beat were a multi-racial, multi-age group that signed a one-single deal with two-tone records and had a number six hit with a cover of Tears of a Clan in January of this year. Like the specials, they ended up forming their own label, Go Feet in a deal with Arista Records, and had two more top 10 hits in 1980 with Hands Off She's Mine and Mirror in the Bathroom. This is the follow up to Mirror in the Bathroom, a double A side with Stand Down Margaret, which Dave Wakeling described in the wake of Margaret Thatcher's death as a song which said, quote, Stop showing off to everybody, humble yourself a bit, stop pretending you're posh, we know you're from Nottingham. Ooh. It's up this week from number thirty to number twenty-seven. So fucking angry
3: about that. Mm-hmm. Grantham's fucking
2: miles away, you bastard. I was,
3: I was just, sort of, I was just let, letting you seethe there quietly. I didn't want to say anything. Yeah. So,
2: Simon, before we get stuck into the beat, one of your favourite bands of the time. Um, this is this here is your fucking oh, he's the same age as me. Moment, isn't it? What do you mean? Who do you think? Oh, Saxer sax-a. saxa, Oh my
3: God. So, um. Uh, So, go on, how old was he? 50. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, because it was a real novelty, wasn't it, um, at the time? Yeah. That The Beat had a member of the band who was this sort of, um, yeah, he was was 50, but he looked like, you know, this old Jamaican guy who, I mean, he could have been 70 for all you, It might might as well have been, because just kind of culturally, stylistically, he was so different from the younger guys in the band. He even had a beard, people just didn't have beards uh, and all of that. Um, I actually, uh, I, I met Saxo once. Um, I, I booked the uh, the international beat, which is a kind of fragmentary version of them after they split up, to play yeah. at um, a university ball. And he um, was quite a handful. I, I, I tell you that. He, he's. I don't know how I can really? say this. Uh, he had, he had, a, he had an eye for the ladies. Let's put it that way, to yeah. to the point of being a little bit of a pest. But you know, um, great saxophonist. Um, yeah didn't he ever go at David Bowie for
2: not leaving any cans out in the rider <laughs> is that right apparently so
3: yeah carry on blathering and I'll uh, I'll look that up so I mean I don't think I'm gonna get much disagreement from either of you here but um, I think the beat are one of the greatest bands this country's ever produced and I think it's an absolute crime. Mm. That they're not recognised as such. The people go on and don't get me wrong, rightly go on about the jam and the specials and madness and all of that stuff in the similar era, mm. but I I just think the beat are eternally eternally underrated. Um, it, it's it's almost like that thing in in the nineties. People would sort of buttonhole you and say, um, "All right, who do you prefer then, Oasis or Blur?" And you know the, the correct answer was Pulp, or or you know the correct answer was some hip-hop group or whatever that there was nothing to do with that whole um you know binary thing and it's a similar thing around the time of two-tone people would say who do you prefer then specials or madness well the beat actually the beat were probably the better group out of all of them what has to be said here
2: now that we're seeing a lot of the mod bands around about this time in an absolute rut whilst at the same time um all the two-tone bands uh who you know who who started only a year ago uh, have had absolutely no problems in in moving on and and progressing you know yeah. that they, they all sounded kind of similar at first now you've now you know the beat the specials and madness all sound like three totally different bands now, don't That's they? That's
3: right. Which which actually bothered me a bit at the time because I, I was only just sort of catching up with Scar and I thought, well, come on, guys, stay stay as you are for a bit. You know, let me enjoy that. Yeah. But you know, look, looking back, it was actually brilliant what they were doing. And also, we've yeah. we've seen Secret Affair at the start of this episode, nominally a mod band. There's something much more mod about the Beat in terms of the kind of sh- the sharpness of of their music and their and their look, everything about them. Um, the, the whole aesthetic, if you look at that first album i just can 't stop it um the art the artwork and just that the sound was so um uh, kind of uptight and kind of wiry and um and fidgety and, and it it sounded like a record that's entirely made on amphetamines and it makes secret affairs sound like fucking hippies to be honest with you. You know what I mean? Um and, and, and you're right that they've moved on. This isn't Scar. Best friend is not a scar record. And and it's on their first fucking album. Um it's 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 kind of power pop really I suppose new wave, whatever. And it, it points the way towards um, the beat's amazing but little heard third album special beat service which which is all about this kind of really beautifully crafted mature songwriting what simon said i agree with every single word i always preferred
0: them over madness and the specials um, there was this kind of razor threshing sharpness about the music um, they were and they weren't just a political band
3: yeah i mean i, I could rhapsodize about the, the beat all fucking day. I just, uh, in in the unlikely event that anybody's listening to this who hasn't investigated the beat, fucking, hell do it. Particularly the the first and third albums, I, I would say, but just all the singles. And um, and, and Dave Dave Wakeling, I I think he he's quite an unassuming character. He wasn't sort of you know Mister Personality like you know one of these one of these things like like Weller or Strummer But he 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 deserves to be seen in that light, I think, for being a brilliant political song songwriter. And also, he, he he looked fucking amazing. He's a very very handsome man, and uh, and 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 wore. Um, well, as well as a CND badge in, the, in his performance, which was really powerful. Um, he's, wear, he's wearing one earring in, in a way. I think he was the first pop star on my radar to wear an earring and make it look heterosexual. <laughs> so, that David Bowie
2: Saxa story. So, according to Dave Wakelin, they did a show opening for David Bowie and uh, he came into the dressing room and said hello to us, which was remarkable, while he was in his stage clothes, which were black pants and a black vest with a white shirt on. He comes in our trailer and says, Really Great to be doing some shows with you. I'm very pleased. I just wanted to check if everything is okay. Do you have everything you need? Saxa, sitting in the back of the bus, says in a Jamaican accent, Hey, Sonny boy, come with me, and puts his arm around Bowie, dragging him to the fridge. <laughs> Saxa opens it up and says, You see any red stripe in there? Bowie replies, No, I don't. To which Saxa says, Ah, Sonny boy, that's what we need. Bowie responds right away and dashes out of the caravan. About 10 minutes later, another guy shows up with a case of red stripe. Saxa, being all happy, says, nice man there, who is him anyway, coming oh, in the caravan yeah. like that? And I said, well, that's David Bowie. And Sax replied, me thought he was a waiter. <laughs> so the following week, best friend moved up to number 22, its highest position the follow up too nice to talk to got to number 7 in January of 1981 and they'd have three more top 40 hits before splitting up in
1: 1983 let's talk about ourselves on
4: the floor. let's talk about come on fellas play the game down zip, zip. That's better. Sports All right, two short, wonderful persons. Uh, what about the charts generally? Kev and Cliff, how do you think the charts are going as far as sort of different types of music? Well, I think at the moment there's something in the charts for everyone. You know,
0: it, there's whatever your choice of music, I think there's one in there which you like. I, don't oh. I, I mean, I just think anything
4: that's missing is him in. That won't be long, will it? Yes, he's about 149 in the charts at the moment. Get down, get oh, down. I, you know, it's, it's a bad. nice night, you know. What do you think about Elvis, of course, being in the charts back now? Well, it, doesn't re- it really doesn't matter what I think. B.A. Robertson's hairdresser thinks he's terrific. B.A. Robertson's head, I think is terrific. Got no taste. He t- yeah. B.A.'s head, not he? I see. Yes, you know, wrong. I'll tell you what, British dumb fellas, because now is the best record you've ever heard in your life. One of my favourites from Randy Crawford. And one day, I'll fly away. Can you stand the pace? If you fly away, eventually I'll wait.
2: After forcing Cliff Richard and Kevin Keegan to kneel at his feet, Travis solicits an opinion from Keegan upon the state of the current hit parade. Keegan thoughtfully muses that there's something for everyone. Instead of asking Cliff Richard about his opinion on the lamentable performance of England in that summer's European Championship, Travis asks Cliff on how he feels about Elvis currently being the charts at number 17 with its only love. Cliff responds that B. A. Robertson's hairdresser thinks it's fantastic, and casts suspicion on Mr. Robertson's shit haircut. Has he just cussed Elvis down there?
3: Yeah, he has. Which is weird, isn't it? Who the He's, fuck I mean, is he? Is he still bitter from from being written off in the early days as sort of Britain's third-rate answer to Elvis? It still rankles. This with is him. quite the quite the Trinity, isn't it? Yeah. The captain of
2: England, the Peter Pan of pop, and uh, and Travis.
3: And like yeah, and and he's he's treating them like dogs, doing that whole yeah. um, pants people pants people down sit routine, which is bizarre. And then and then then Cliff says his thing, and why right? Why B. A. Robertson's hairdresser? What is is there some kind of have, have they sort of cut a bit out that we haven't seen where B. A. Robertson is somehow relevant well, to this discussion?
2: Well, he's had dealings with B. A. Robertson because he was the co-writer of Care. so you know right. this
3: might be a bit of a. A bit of a cheeky poke. All right, top bounce, top bands.
2: Um Cliff Richard's not very good at this sort of thing, is he?
0: Now, you see, this is where I have an advantage. I'm old enough to remember the, uh, when Cliff Richard had, had um, his own weekly variety show. And yeah. Yeah, this took up all of Saturday night. And this was, you know, precious time. The telly was on all the time. And this is what we got. Yeah. What we got was this. Um so yeah, Cliff Richard um, had he fancied himself as a kind of not just a you know a song and a dance uh, man, yes. but also a bit of a yeah. kind of a light entertainer. He had Hank Marvin as his sidekick, and it was terrible, terrible. Hank Mark, Hank Marvin, whose idea of um, yeah. comedy is to say Cliff Richard rather than Cliff Richard. It's bizarre, He's, isn't it? Um, yeah, well, Hank Marvin did great things. He, um, you know, with the shadows, um, Apache, you know, that's actually a seminal moment in rock history, and in rock history's timeline. But as a comedian, he was piss, piss poor. He was like, you know, um, he was a homeopathically dilute version of Sid Little or something. Um, and his catchphrase was to go, ugh, ugh, which would send studio audience into kind of gales of laughter. Um, but yes, so my memories of, Cliff and Hank Marvin are bitter indeed.
3: And um, referring to my uh, camera script, uh, I can see here that um, they were supposed to show a clip of uh, It's Only Love. Is it mm. It's Only Love, the song by Elvis Presley? Um, yes. So that's probably why they asked Cliff for his opinion of it. But then, um, for, for some unknown reason, that clip gets, yes. gets cut from the transmitted show. But they leave they leave in... Cliff's weird little bitter sideswipe at Elvis. So it sort of makes yeah. no no sense at all, yeah.
0: Let's face it, all jokes on top of the puff. Bar John Peel. every now and again. Die a stray dog's death. It's strange, you know, you've got Kevin Keegan here and Cliff and Dave Lee Travis. It's almost like, you know, jostling to be the best men in Britain, Britain's alpha males. And all of this, you know, the kicking about like a football, this nonsense about B.A. Robertson's hairdresser. Do you
2: think Cliff thinks B.A. Robertson's a cunt like everyone else? Yeah. It could be. It's very enigmatic. Future historians are going to be scratching
0: their heads over yeah. this. And it's a shame <laughs> that, given that this is probably going to be one of the very few resources that we will be able to refer to, that we ourselves, so close to the event, can't discover
2: what this is no. all about. No. Maybe, uh, maybe the secret's buried underneath his vineyard. With the, with the with the with the no, I'm not going to say it. I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it. No, there's a there's a clip on YouTube. There's a clip on YouTube where this woman and it was it was put out during the time when he uh when he was being buzzed by helicopters, um and uh, she said, oh, I've got these questions for Cliff Richard, and one of the questions she asked is, uh, you have a vineyard in Portugal. Is it true that you fertilize that vineyard with the blood of children?
1: <laughs> so maybe that was it. Maybe maybe
2: DLT was going to ask that question, and he
3: hasn't denied it. I noticed I notice Cliff Richard by his silence is making yes. himself seem very guilty of, <laughs> of, 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 of fertilizing his vineyard with the blood of children. Maybe if he
2: did say to uh, Cliff Richard, "Is it true that you fertilize that your vineyard in Portugal with the blood of children?" He will say, "Well, I don't know, but B. A. Robertson's hairdresser thinks it tastes fantastic." The thing about Cliff
0: Richard is his wines are very good. They may be maybe, you know, as a vintner, this may be um his primary contribution to um Western society. Um they're meant to be very good indeed. I don't know what he fertilises them with. You know, maybe it's the blood of B.A. Robertson.
3: That's why Carrie doesn't live here anymore. She's pushing up the fucking Pinot Noir. Yes.
2: This extremely awkward dollop of banter is ended. By Travis introducing the best record you've ever heard in your life just before we go into the song Travis turns to Cliff and says can you stand the pace and Cliff says if you fly away eventually I'll wait what the fucking hell is he going on
3: about yeah well why don't you just say fuck off you cunt but what, what what stood out for me about this, and, and we've seen this phenomenon a few times on the show, is that moment where the presenter is introducing a record that they like and they think is quality. Yes. Um, in fact, DLT himself, yeah. I think, and he's, he's hyped this or big stuff. DLT, hasn't I it? think, himself did it with um, Elkie Brooks uh, "Fool If You Think It's Over" on, on yes. a previous uh, episode that we looked at. Yeah. And I think Simon Bates did the same yeah. thing. So here he's, he he does this sort of headmasterly thing of saying, "Now keep," he says, "Now keep mm. Stum." Um, during this, so he's basically yes. reaching through the telly to every child or sulky teenager in every living room in the country, saying now now, you yeah, might not like it. is
2: chalk dust yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: He's saying now you might not like it, but maybe the mums and dads will, so just behave. Behave yourselves, children, yes. while this song is playing. And it's no I'm, I'm, it's no reflection on the record. It's a, it's a fucking brilliant record, but yeah, he just does that sort of cringy thing of saying now, now listen, everything else in this show has been a bit, bit of frivolity, but now this is some, some proper music.
2: Yes. So, born Veronica Crawford in Macon, Georgia In 1952, Randy Crawford spent the 70s as a jazz singer who gigged with George Benson, Cannonball Adelaide and Fred Wesley with a solo career on the side, but she first appeared in the UK charts when she recorded Street Life with the Crusaders, which got to number five in September of 1979. This is the follow-up to last night in Danceland, which got to number sixty-one in June of this year, and it's this week's highest new entry at number twenty-six. And yes, like you've said, Simon, when when DLT said something good, it's time to, you know, nip down to the pantry and get some toast toppers going. But yeah, this song's fucking mint, isn't it?
3: It is, and, and do you notice that it gets played full length. A lot of the songs in this yes. episode have been cut short. Um and yeah. I, I wonder whether this is DLT's own editorial influence going on here. Yes. Um no, I, I just think it's 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 just a wonderful record. Um something about the um the the filming of it, um I, I notice in the notes here, everyone else is recorded um I guess in a normal top of the pop studio, uh um but um in, in uh Shepherd's Bush. Um it says here in brackets underneath her name, Music Studio. Um uh, Thirteen thirty to sixteen thirty. So she's in a different bit of the building, a different studio, and I guess that's that's why you don't see an audience. Is that right? I yeah,
2: I, I just thought it was filmed uh, on an, from an American show. It's got that kind of NTSC thing going on about it.
3: Well, it, say, it says music studio. I don't know what that means, but you know, yeah. it, but it's, it's got. Um, uh, sort of uh, times, sort of you know, 30, 30, 60, uh, As if she's doing her own little filming separate from the rest of the um, stupidity that's going on. And I, yes. I, don't, I don't know if that's her stipulation that she didn't want anyone pogoing during her song. Mm, is possible, mm. but, but there we go. But, but um,
2: whoever's done it, they've made a huge balls up of it, haven't they? Because I mean, the one thing that needs to be brought out in the open straight away is that um, you know, you you look at Randy Crawford's mouth, and you know straight away she's not British. She's got the most amazing teeth ever, and whoever's directed this has decided to uh emphasize those teeth.
3: It is extraordinary, and it's emphasized by the fact she I, I don't think she opens her eyes once during the performance. Her no. eyes are screwed tight, no. so it's all teeth and smiles. Um and yeah. I, I wonder if that's a kind of shyness on her part, whether, you know, she's not a not, yeah. not somebody who's who's, you know, particularly comfortable um you know, giving it the full kind of lead singer face that, that, that you're meant to do, yes. I don't
2: know. Yeah, but it has to be said that um, kind of Randy Crawford sings like that dog in That's Life says sausages. <laughs> it, it's all about the teeth, and it, it gets quite fucking terrifying near the end with the vision mixing, because you see that they layer her face a few times, and at, at one point, her head has been tilted down, but her teeth are shining through, and it's you know. If I was five, I'm sleeping in my mum's bed tonight because I, I'd have pissed mine in absolute fear of 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 Randy Crawford's teeth.
3: Are, are you okay, Al? I mean, you know, are you over it? It sounds like it's still
2: well. I, I was, I was, I was, I was extremely teethophobic <laughs> as a, as a child. Um, my uh, uh, my great grandma Kit had uh, had really oversized false teeth. And they fucking terrified me to the point where every time I went to see her on a Sunday, I would say, "Oh, I, I'm not going to kiss you today, Grandma Kit." And uh, my dad had dragged me outside and fucking tan
3: my ass, <laughs> but I was so terrified of her fucking teeth. <laughs> but yeah, you're, you're right. Um, I, I, I noticed that when they sort of overlay her head on her own head, um, one yeah. of one of them is mouthing the wrong words. One of them sort of singing a bit yeah. that, that we haven't come to yet, like really, yes. really visibly, so it kind of doesn't work, does it? And it kind of looks a bit like alien when she does that yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, like she, she just come yeah out. Yeah, exactly. Um I I know it's from the from the camera script here and it's so meticulous that um it's got the lyrics and then it's got obviously there's an instrumental break and it says two bars capital letters then two bars capital letters then it brackets mm, mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that's how precise these camera this camera script is for this. Jesus! Can you imagine if the KGB had
2: discovered this yeah. somewhere left in a left in someone's briefcase <clears throat> at fucking Paddington Station and think, yeah. "Well, the, this is obviously important." But what the fuck does yeah. it mean?
3: But I, I just think with this record, um, at the time, I, I wouldn't have understood the the the, the chord progressions. The chord progressions are sort of out of musical theatre rather than out of pop. Uh, it's it's just mm. too too sophisticated for for my, my palate at the time. Um, yeah. Now I absolutely love it, and I, I do think with Randy Crawford, what a singer! Um why yeah. why don't yeah. why don't people go on about Randy Crawford like they do about yes. I don't know Aretha Franklin or, or whoever? Just uh, yes. just an extraordinary voice. Um, I don't know. What, mm. what, what, what do you guys think?
0: Thing is, I was so into clubs at the time and dancing that I was always a bit dismayed by ballads. So I really didn't appreciate this as much as I should have. But I did worship Street Life. And you know, Randy Crawford, what a voice! What a voice!
2: Yeah,
3: yeah. No, I mean, Street Life was a fucking gym. Yeah. it really was. And um, uh, do, do we all notice what what DLT does in the outro there? Because um, uh, with with uh, Hank Marvin already having done a really bad Scottish Clough Rutchard thing, uh, we've we've now yes. got DLT doing this fake French accent and saying, "Now that, za- yeah. now now that is what I call a very tasty piece of music." For fuck's sake. Oh my skin Yeah, crook. why? Yeah, yeah. Why? I mean, it is a very tasty piece of music, but.
2: So the following week, One Day I'll Fly Away, soared up 24 places to number four. Fucking hell. I was spent two weeks at number two, held off the top spot by Kelly Marie and Don't Stand So Close to Me by the police. The follow up, You Might Need Somebody, got to number 11 and that's brilliant in July well. of 19, no, I, Yes, yes um before we go chaps i need to ask were there any performances on top of the pops that scared you as a child
3: uh sparks uh yeah um basically mm. um i think them doing beat the clock uh and uh just ron ron Mail, his his unnerving uh glares yeah. to camera and his stillness that just absolutely fucking terrified me and also um time i saw twisted sister on the telly Uh, And by the way, I I love Sparks and I I, I kind of love Twister Sisters' on shtick as well. But at at, at the time, I was was just bricking it if I watched that stuff. With
0: me right, late 60s, it was the Rolling Stones. It's um, along with, you know, baked beans on toast or whatever. It's one of my little formative experiences. Um, They had this thing, whenever they went on, um, there was always this kind of slightly kind of, um, anarchic breakdown between the um, band and the audience, and you would have like Jagger pulling girls on stage or whatever, and it genuinely felt to me as a little kid, you know, and you get a bit phased by these things when you're a little kid that things were actually getting out of hand and that um, you know perhaps the police were going to have it to be called.
2: Uh, the punk bands always scared me because they always had this habit of just singing and then suddenly just sticking the face in the camera. And there was one, there was one time, I mean, I was... Uh, my dad got a portable telly off the round, as I've mentioned before. So I mainly watched Top of the Pops in black and white in my bedroom. And typical boy of that age bedroom, it was a fucking shithole. And so the lead was tangled up with God knows what else. And uh, I remember one time I'm watching it and uh, I'm standing up and having a bit of a dance to... Uh, I think it was... Oh, she's so modern by the Boomtown Rats. And all of a sudden, Bob Geldof sticks his face into the camera and I just jumped up and knocked the telly over. <laughs> and it lived. The The, the, the telly lived. But the, the scariest thing, the scariest thing on telly ever for me as a child was, uh, well, the, the Humphreys used to scare the shit out of me because you, didn't, you never saw them. So you just imagined that the most horrible things ever. But the ultimate was the News at 10 theme tune. That shit me up so badly because it sounds like a knife attack. And so I'd be lying in bed and I could hear the telly downstairs because my dad had it on full blast. And, you know, the the the, the, the music at 10 o'clock kind of like put the shits up me and it's like, oh my God, I've got to be asleep before the fucking end music comes on because that is the worst fucking horrible music ever. It just goes absolutely fucking mental and I'd just be there, and if I wasn't asleep by half ten, I'd just be crunched up with like two pillars wrapped around my head.
3: I think I think the most the most traumatic thing that was regularly uh, screened to, to children in that era, um, uh, and this, there's almost a whole separate podcast in this, is, yes, is public is. information films for children. Yes, um, of course. And uh, um, I, I actually, as chance would have it, watched a bunch of them last night because uh, my girlfriend has hasn't seen any of this stuff. So uh, uh, Charlie says, it's fairly tame actually, but you know, uh, a yeah. cat falling in a canal and all that kind of stuff. But, oh, that, but that's because it's, terri- it's the violin yeah, music, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, You've got a cartoon cat oh, in a canal. That, that, that's dark. fairly sort of softcore. But then you get to, um, uh, uh, you, you get a, a kid flying a kite uh, near a pylon and uh, yes. Uh, and
1: Jimmy! Jimmy, and he,
3: he falls to the ground in, in a load of flames. Or, or you've got well—that's him getting his frisbee back. Well, uh, no, oh, there, there's a kid. There's two separate ones. There's, there's a kid, uh, yeah, breaking into the um, uh, electricity substation to get his frisbee back. But, but yeah. the king of them all, of course, is the spirit of dark and lonely water. Of course,
2: of course. Um, Do- Donald of course.
3: Donald Pleasant's, um voicing this kind of grim reaper as children mm. are playing in an abandoned. Quarry or pond or whatever it is, and uh, yeah, one one of whom is Benny out
2: of Grange. Seriously,
3: wow! Yeah, and and it, it's pretty clear that the people who made these films were, were taking some kind of government budget and, um, you know, using it as a testing ground for their um, budding careers in making horror movies or something like that. Clearly, it's what they wanted to do. There's that one. Is it called um, the 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 late run or something, It's it's a bunch of kids running across a railway track. It's about fifteen minutes long. And, oh, yes. And and it's almost like this kind of Hunger Games or, or um, uh, I, I don't know, um, Lord of the Flies type survivalist scenario where these kids are running back and forth, uh, or Battle Royale or whatever, um, you know... Uh, Trying to outdo each other And getting mown down one. But It's really quite graphic
0: You get this kind of Hauntological quality I think to this kind of music There's lots of analogue synths And stuff like that Yes There's also this kind of Slightly lost sense Of the state actually Looking after you It's very evocative right? Yeah yeah You know the, the, Then the British state You know Before Margaret Thatcher Rolled it back Or whatever You know Really was kind of Looking out for you Albeit in a very slightly Kind of paternalistic Sort of way um, there's something sort of deeply lost and nostalgic about that.
3: By 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 the eighties, that that had just become shrunk down to "don't be gay" and "don't take heroin." That's all the government cared about. Yeah,
2: yeah. If you if you're not British and you want to know why we're so fucked up, <laughs> Charlie says.
1: What?
4: It's what I call a very testy piece of music. I at 26, mm-hmm. of course, Randy Crawford, and fly away. Now, how about a look at the top ten? They're like this. Yeah, right my life. Cliff Richard moves up four places to this week's number ten in the charts. Give me a smile, the in and after a few years away, Mike Berry in the charts at nine this week with I the sunshine of your smile. A sweet old
1: paradise. The gods make paradise. Their
4: minds as cold Down as four, as four but still a winner. Winner takes it all from Aber at number so eight. Dear. Have to uh, a little control love. lunacy from murder uh, The Piranhas and Tom Ox. Down to seven. You have to love. Two places in the right direction for Gary Newman's "I Die, You
1: Die."
4: First of three ladies together in the charts. Hazel O'Connor on the eighth day up eight places to number five. Of two records in the charts from Sheena Eastern, nine to five at number four.
1: Takes home again.
4: Getting ever closer, up two places from five to three, feels like I'm in love. It's Kelly Marie. to and squeezed ever so delicately down to, to number two. It's David Bowie and Ashes to Ashes. ashes. I found Right, it's time for the number one, but I cannot announce it because I'm on a diet. Kevin Kiganos, come here. I can't announce it. Kevin, um, you know. Are on a diet, really? Yes, yes, sorry. Okay, well, I can't do it. What about
0: a creamy, big cream cake?
4: No. Wrong, uh, wrong. wrong.
0: Uh, greasy bacon sarnie?
4: Wrong, wrong. Jam. 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 Yes, I like that. That's nice. It is real, you know.
2: After the top ten rundown, Travis and Kev indulge in a bit of food-related banter before introducing this week's number one, Start by the Jam. Formed in Woken in 1972, the Jam had eight top 40 hits from 1977 onwards before finally cracking the top 10 with the Eaton Rifles in November of 1979. They kicked off 1980 with a double A side Going Underground and Dreams of Children, which went straight in at number one in March of this year. This is the follow up, which is the first and only official single from the forthcoming LP sound effects, which Paul Weller insisted on putting out over Polydoy's Choice pretty green it was last week's highest new entry at number three this week's number one
3: yeah paul weller with his lichtenstein guitar uh, backed as always by martin shaw and dennis waterman um yes uh, yeah um I've, i i had a theory about this song um that and anyone i've told this theory to just thinks i'm completely insane but that the lyrics are oh. somehow based on george orwell's 1984 all the stuff about it's mm. not important for you to know my name or, or, or I to know yours. If we communicate for two minutes only, it'll be enough. That's almost exactly something that I think Julia says to Winston Smith in 1984, mm. um, I, and that that book. All the all the all the fifty-year-old
2: prostitute with no teeth.
3: <laughs> uh, but that 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 book. I mean, the book 1984 was such a kind of touchstone for people of the post-punk generation, and particularly with with yes. actual 1984 looming. So that that's my yeah. theory about the you know somewhat cryptic lyrics, but. Um, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, well done, Simon. Obviously, um, musically, it's it's famously based on on, on Taxman by the Beatles. Um, but mm. I think it's better. I think it's one of those things where yeah, they, I think it's, a lot it's better. just much better. And it's got this kind of fantastic contained aggression to it, which this is this is a mod mm. record, never mind Secret Affair. Fucking hell. There's, yeah. there's something about this. It's so minimal, it's, but it's got this kind of tautness and this kind of thwack to it that... Um, even some of the other jam stuff just lacked. And I, I think it gets overlooked. People always think of Town Call Malice. They think of Going Underground. Yeah. Th- this is, what is it? It's only about two minutes long. It's a really short record. It's re- really yeah. self-contained. And it is just contained aggression. That's how I think i describe it. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful record.
2: Do you think any jam single at, at this time would have got to number one?
3: Few, yeah, songs like Funeral Pyre and, and uh, Absolute Beginners didn't get to number one. But they still zoom bang into the top ten because uh, they're, they're quite, yeah. you know, I mean, Absolute Beginners wasn't uh, the most memorable tune and Funeral Pie is quite challenging. It's almost like gothic. But um, nevertheless, the jam were in such a kind of imperial phase at that time that that they could could put out pretty pretty much anything and their fan base was so loyal, they would just zoom out to the shops on the very first day and buy it. It was the kind of unquestioning loyalty.
0: I think with the jam, it was an echo of Slade. The fact that, like, you got the impression that all the Slade geezers were just rush straight out and make sure that even stuff like squeeze me went straight to number one no messing um and you got that thing with the jam they always went straight in there straight in there number one they never didn't meander slowly up the charts the way other things did um it was like absolutely um right in there at the top yeah yeah um and i think you know in the sense it was almost like you know because it was football you know you had to be you know the jam had to be top dog; otherwise, all was lost. Now, Star, obviously, as we know, is based on um, George Harrison's Taxman. What well, George Harrison, when he was the Beatles, the Beatles Taxman from Revolver, but it's better than Taxman. I think he's put to much better use here. Is this particular riff than this pathetic sort of George Harrison whinge about the um, tax rate that the Beatles are being forced to pay? And he was such a hypocrite because he'd he would immediately follow these kind of petty rants about um the amount of tax he was having to pay with um tracks all about how he must kind of abandon the kind of petty materialistic concerns of the west and be take a leaf from the from the orient and the subcontinent and um their attitudes to the material world i mean what a twat
2: what do we think about the video it's just a standard band performance with a you know, with a few angles and switching from black and white to it's, colour. It's, it's nicely
3: lit, uh, or you know, it's underlit, yes. isn't it? But I like that. Um, yeah, and I can't. God, I really wish I had it in front of me. But has has it got uh, Venetian blinds in it? Because yeah, because yes. that, that's that's such such an eighties trope, the Venetian blind. In a video. Yes, it is, um, yeah. Along with swinging light bulbs and stuff like that. It
0: hasn't dated. and I think that's because it it's doesn't do cool. any kind of video-y things. Yeah. You look at some of the kind of ABC and, and that time, they're all trying to be kind of clever, clever, and it's all slightly kind of overlit as well. Um, I think probably that kind of slightly no bullshit thing that Weller probably had about being a video artist or whatever, just simply kind of feeling performance, actually means that not being ambitious... In video terms, I think has probably served him well here because, after all, we are now living in the kind of post-video age.
3: I've, I even I even love the fact that it's got an exclamation mark in the title. It's it's really important. It's start exclamation mark. That's that's such a mod thing. It's such a pop art. It's a pop art thing as well, which you know echoes the the, the guitar. There's no getting around it. Well has got a mullet going on
2: there, <laughs> uh, along with along with Bruce Foxon. and yeah. for, forever. It was only until I watched this video. You know, to do research for this, that I realised that um, Bruce Foxon's actually wearing a red jacket with a T-shirt with a red square on it, as opposed to wearing some red Rod, Jane, and Freddie dungarees. Oh, so
3: that's improved. He slightly, looks a
2: bit. It. He looks a bit like a mulleted Mario <laughs> in this. And and yes, as you as you said, Simon, uh, um, Rick Buckler is the spit of Dennis Waterman.
3: Yeah. I Did actually um, yeah yeah yes, yeah. I, I, I mocked up because uh, this is how bored I get sometimes uh, when I'm on a deadline usually um, I, I mocked up a, a, a film poster for the Jam the movie with um, Weller played by Nicholas Lyndhurst, which is not it's, <laughs> it's not it's not the best uh, uh, close you know resemblance, but it's the only one I could get, but mainly so that I could point out that um, Bruce Foxton looks like Martin Shaw from the professionals yes. and, <laughs> uh, and that Rick Buckler looks like Dennis Waterman. So, yeah, Yeah. it's a a cheap shop, but I enjoyed it, way of honing my Photoshop skills.
0: If there was any humour in the world of estate agents, there would be a company called Weller and Bucklers, right opposite Foxton's.
2: (laughs) I mean, at this time, I mean, I was was a jam obsessive, uh, you know, started off with going underground. And uh, the previous month, I bought my first ever band T-shirt, a screen print from uh, Skegness Butlins of the jam kind of spoiled it by having my nickname at work at the programme shop over the top which was Peanut <laughs> and uh, and yeah and I was just walking around with my jam t-shirt on, thinking yeah look at me I'm the face and uh, I accidentally fell into the uh, into the boating lake <laughs> and uh, got dragged out by my dad which you know kind of Kind of ruined the ace face image I was looking which, for.
3: Which ironically sounds like a scene from a, a later Paul Weller video from Long Hot Summer. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So
0: yes. your dad was at hand there.
3: Yeah, I mean I was trying to be I was trying to be an ace face while walking alongside my Quiffy dad, which didn't help. Al, if only you'd paid attention to the Charlie says public information film yes. about cats falling canals, it might not have happened.
2: Yes. <laughs> the
0: spirit of the dark and lonely boating lake. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yeah, I mean I was one of those people who rushed out and bought this record the minute it came out. I was disappointed it didn't go straight in at number 1, but you know, it got there in the end.
3: Did did you even buy Just Who Is The 5 O'Clock Hero on a Spanish import that somehow also we, got in the top 20? Dutch import. Was yeah, oh, shame on me. Of
2: <laughs> course I did. Yeah, of course it did. And I and I was that person. I, and sound effects was the first album I ever bought for myself. Even though even though it was a Canadian import, and I can't understand why the the cover uh was on the back and uh the actual cover was them standing by funnily enough a boating lake. <laughs> This was the only week at number one for start, which dropped to number two the next week to make way for Feels Like I'm In Love by Kelly Marie. The next bit of jam action in the charts happened in February of 1981, when a German import of That's Entertainment made it to number 21, the second biggest selling import in UK chart history after Just Who Is The Five O'Clock Hero by The Jam.
4: I said it, a number one this week. Care for the android this afternoon.
0: A tremendous day. I've really enjoyed it. It's been it. I'm gonna come back next week, i I'm sorry
4: you're not gonna come back, next week, because the director says you're too good and you might scare the lads out of a job. But listen, anyway, never mind. We're going now. So say goodbye and we wish you well with the foot. Well, hope it gets Thank better soon. Goodbye, Take care of yourself. Good night. good night, everybody from Top of Mother. See you next week. week. Ah! Ah!
2: After Travis informs Keegan that he can't come back next week Travis tells him that he hopes his poorly foot gets better before they get bum rushed by the kids in an explosion of streamers and balloons and yes Keegan pulls that face Alan Partridge does when he gets angry it's exactly <laughs> isn't it and they sign off with Bank Robber by The Clash formed in London in 1976 The Clash like The Jam saw their first eight singles fail to break the top ten This song, the follow-up to London Calling, which got to number 11 in January of this year, was recorded in Manchester under the supervision of Mikey Dredd and was witnessed by 17-year-old Ian Brown, who was walking past the studio like a monkey that shit itself when his mate got invited in. It's up this week from number 19 to number 12, and tacked on at the end because the Clash obviously swore down that they'd never play "Top of the Pops," which is why two weeks previously it was danced to by Legs and Company. I, I Cove. wonder at yeah. what
3: point this decision got made because in the um, camera script it just says "Good night" and play out disc. It doesn't say what the song is. Um, so um, maybe, maybe it's because nobody <laughs> wanted the Clash getting wind of the fact that they're going to be on exactly, top of the pops. Because yeah. you know, famously, they, they never wanted to be on top of the pops. Uh, and but the. Uh, mm. they've sort of managed to get on there whether they like it or not so what do we
2: reckon to this I mean you know punk punk bands having a go at reggae you know Clash yeah. have done it many a time and oft <laughs> Ruts have had a go since then I've, I've kind of come round know,
3: to the Clash myself in recent years I used to be a real kind of Clash well Clash sceptic rather than Clash phobic maybe would be a fair way of putting it just mm. because probably just because I've always been annoyed by the way that people hold them up as the real kind of exemplar of real integrity and proper punk and all that, all that kind of stuff um, and, you know, mm. th- there are even people out there who will tell you that the Clash's version of Police and Thieves is better than Junior Mervyn's, well, you know, in terms of them doing reggae, which is absolutely fucking insane. It's a real clod-hopping version they've done of Police and Thieves. Um, but, you know, Bank Robber, yeah, that's that's pretty decent. You've got things like Straight to Hell and White Man in Hammersmith Palais, which obviously um, rooted in reggae. And yeah i think if if you take them take them on their own merits they're 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 pretty decent and also they were experimenting with with funk and um hip hop on something like uh, Magnificent seven um uh, quite a long time before other bands of their generation cottoned on uh yeah so uh, you know i i i think maybe uh who am I to sort of tell everybody we should give the we should give the clash more credit I think everyone gives them plenty of fucking credit i basically, I basically <laughs> have a conversation yeah. myself saying you know um I need to get over it and because I, it, you know, I always had this idea. Either you're a Pistols person or a Clash person, and I and I'm, I was very much a Pistols mm. person. But, but fucking you know, fair, fair. You know, they they did some amazing stuff. They really did. The one thing
2: I can remember about this song is that uh, I was listening to Radio One one night. I was starting to dip a toe into the uh, into the non Simon Bates output of Radio One, and uh, Annie Nightingale was uh, inviting uh, listeners to, uh, to 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 uh, phone in or write in and say what what does this song sound like? What, what does it remind you of? You know, they've ripped off something here with the... oh, 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 oh bit. And uh, I never found out the answer and it's bothered me for fucking ages what, the, what, what they thought the answer was. I think it's uh, the theme tune to Rupert the Bear. <laughs> My daddy was a bank robber. Everyone knows his name.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Rupert... Rupert with the bear, he never
0: hurt nobody. Yeah, it works.
2: <laughs> so the following week, Bank Robber dropped one place to number thirteen. And by the end of the year the clash had released Sandinista and the first single from it, The Call Up, the follow up to Bank Robber, would only get to number forty. They're still in the uh they're still in the afterglow of London calling, aren't they, by this point? So, what's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One follows up with the first in the new series of Blankety Blank, with Barry Cryer, Katie Boyle, Val Dunican, Janet Brown, Lorraine Chase and Kenny Everett. And yes, it's the one where Everett bends Terry Wogan's microphone. What a fucking night for television. They follow this up with a repeat of the first ever episode of Yes Minister, then the drama series Mackenzie, and they finish off with Russell Harty talking to authors about their phobias in all about books. Probably Randy Crawford's teeth were mentioned there by, I don't know. I think she has lovely teeth. Yeah, she's got lovely teeth, but the way they present it is fucking terrifying. (laughs) uh, No, you're right, Simon, we need to get that over. Randy Crawford's teeth are fucking brilliant, and if, if I had them, I'd sing with my teeth as well (laughs) and they finish off with The Sky at Night BBC 2 is running a short film about a model railway in Small World, followed by the band of the Coldstream Guards in concert, or proper music Then Leap in the Dark, a new series about the supernatural, finishing off with Call My Bluff and the John Wells play Moving Pictures. ITV has just started The Benny Hill Show, followed by TVI reporting from Gdansk, the miniseries The Dream Merchants, News at 10 and they round off the evening with Star Parade, featuring the Bellamy Brothers, some French singers who I don't know and the James Last Orchestra. So, my friends, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow?
0: I think from that TV schedule, you can really see how the punk elite has got a vice-like grip on the nation's sensibilities. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, that's it. I, I, I won't be talking about music at all. I'll be yeah. talking about Kevin Keegan be, being a fucking dick and about how uh, you know my idol Kenny Dalglish no. would never do that.
2: No, he'd, he'd go on uh, whistle test, wouldn't he, or uh, or revolver? And what are we buying on Saturday?
3: Um, The Beat and The Jam, Proudly, and Nick Straker Band, Secretly.
0: The Beat. Mm. Probably not The Jam, you see, because having grown up and gone to university around that time, I have to say that, unfortunately, The Jam were kind of the enemy, because Bruce Springsteen had a similar thing, um, the way that, you know, you had... South Africans in the apartheid era, white South Africans dancing to dancing in the dark. I mean, that may have been the last thing that Springsteen wanted, but that's what happened. Right, at university, Eaton Rifles, you had all these kind of um, sweaty discos at the kind of Oxford colleges, and you had all the rugby twats kind of crowding out everybody and like sort of dancing along to these things, Eaton Rifles, and it was just like horribly boorishly white. Now, Paul Weller may have intended something very, very
2: different, but that's that's how it actually played out
0: on the dance floor.
2: Oh. And what does this episode tell us about September of 1980? Well, it's yeah. like Kevin says, there's something for everyone. Yes.
0: And, you know, this is one of the things... Uh, this Well, episodes like this are a reminder of that. Um, and I think pop was like that at this point. There was always the trade-off between the sublime, and the ridiculous and the the Lena Martells and the David Bowies or whatever. There was always that. And actually, it was the kind of M.O.R. stuff that was actually more predominant. It's like, you know, you get those things when you have an old episode of Heartbeat and it's set in 67. To establish it at 67, they'll play Jimi Hendrix or Cream. And in fact, what they should be playing is Ken Dodd at Inglebert Humperdinck because that was what was actually being broadcast. <laughs> Similar thing about the period pieces of 1980. Now, they always get it wrong it was a lot of the stuff that was in in these shows it was that was what was actually being played
3: yeah i mean i i agree in the sense that mm. what does it tell us about september 1980 it tells us that the curly perm was still alive and well with a certain demographic despite the yeah. you know despite the best efforts yeah. of young bands from coventry and north london
2: so that closes the book on the latest issue of chart music uh Once again, I remind you to check us out at www.chart-music.co.uk. We'll put the show notes up at facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. And you can join us on Twitter at chartmusictotp. That's the end of Chart Music. Once again, thank you very much, Simon Price.
3: Pleasure as always, Alan.
2: Oh, isn't it just. David, thank you very much. Thank you very much, David Stubbs. Thank you very much. And uh, all that remains for me to say is that my name is Al Needham and B.A. Robertson's hairdresser thinks I'm fantastic.
1: Sharp music.